G'day mate, Forty here. So I've been throwing around the word uh, epistemics quite a lot on my show over the last few months. And like, why the heck am I doing that? What do epistemics even mean? So epistemics refers to how do we know what we know? It comes from the root word epistemology. And so to me, this is a really important topic. But uh, other people who, who are, I'm close to say, Forty, you're just being a, a Nancy boy. Forty, you're just being a fancy boy. Forty, you're just pretending to a social status that uh, you don't really have, that doesn't come naturally to you. It's, it's obvious that you're faking it, that you're trying to put something on, that you, you just use the word, you know, thoughtlessly and, and so frequently that, uh, you know, you're compensating for some uh, inner failing. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, is that, is that really what's, uh, what's going on with my use of the word epistemics? So... How do we know what we know? And I think that there are better and worse ways of uh, ascertaining truth. And one, one of the distinguishing characteristics of, of gurus and, and cult leaders is that they essentially try to implicitly or explicitly place you at the center of how you detect what is true. So you hear this with a lot of right-wing pundits. They essentially try to cast doubt on all establishment sources of knowledge from the New York Times to the Food and Drug Administration to the CDC to various pronouncements from governments, from academia, from NGOs. And they usually implicitly say, hey, you really ought to get your information and your knowledge about the wider world from me because I'm on your side. I'm fighting the good battle against those dastardly establishment elites who are trying to keep you down. Then another way of... Uh, explaining how you understand truth is to say that your instincts are essentially uh, the same as God's instincts. All right, that's like just unbelievable chutzpah, it seems like to me. But just imagine how adaptive and useful that is. Like just imagine how much of a sense of confidence you get when you come to believe that your instincts are identical to the Torah's instincts, which are identical to God's instincts. So one reason that these side comments from people like Dennis Prager or Richard Spencer are so amusing is that they do seem to embody who the person really is. They do seem to get to the very essence of what makes Dennis Prager tick. He believes to the core of his being that his instincts are identical to God's instincts. And that's why his instincts are a much better judge of truth than any outside source, whether it's the CDC or some academic study. It doesn't matter that he's innumerate. He doesn't have to wrestle to try to ascertain you know, what are strong academic studies, what are weak academic studies. He just knows that his instincts are identical with the Torah's instincts, and God wrote the Torah, therefore his instincts are identical with God's instincts. And what makes that, that rant by R Richard Spencer uh, so, so amusing, all right, was that uh, it did seem to get to the, to, to the very you know, essence of who he is, all right? He, he comes to the world with just insane levels of self-confidence, which is precisely what draws so many people in, like people who have a hole in their soul, people you know, who feel like they're failing at life, people who feel like there's something lacking. All right, they, get, they get a sense of completeness and strength from listening to the absurd levels of self-confidence embodied by a uh, Richard Spencer. So... Like a fucking hundred times. I am so mad. I am so fucking mad at these people. They don't do this to fucking me. We're gonna fucking ritualistically humiliate them. I 
am coming back here every fucking weekend we have to. Like, this is never over. I win, they fucking lose. That's how the world fucking works. Little fucking kites. They get ruled by people like me. Little fucking oxaroons. I fucking, my ancestors fucking enslaved those pieces of fucking shit. I rule the fucking world. Those pieces of shit get ruled by people like me. They look up and see a face like mine looking down at them. That's how the fucking world works. We are going to destroy this fucking town. So if that rant is not representative of uh, Richard, it wouldn't nearly be so funny. But because anyone who knows Richard at all realizes that this is how he thinks about himself, thinks about the world, thinks about the, the projects that he engages in. That's what makes it funny. So when Mel Gibson was drunk and he got uh, pulled over by a California highway patrolman, it was one of those very, very rare California highway patrolmen, I believe, who, who was Jewish. And Mel starts ranting about how Jews started all the world's wars. Anyone who knew anything about Mel Gibson realized that that drunken rant was, was representative of who he, he really was. And it's not because Mel Gibson is necessarily a bad guy who just hates Jews, but Mel Gibson has sacred values. We, we all have sacred values. We all have a hero story. So part of Mel Gibson's hero story is that, you know, Jesus died for the world's sins. Mel Gibson, I, I think, you know, sincerely believes the claims that Christianity makes for Christ. And the Jews, as the people from whom Jesus came, are the best suited to validate his claims, and they have stubbornly refused to do so. Therefore, there must be something satanic, dark, and, and evil about the Jews. So when we have a sacred value, whether it's our particular people or our particular belief system, right, anything that invalidates what we hold sacred, we are going to turn our fury on. And so I think that's what was happening with Mel Gibson. I have Jewish acquaintances who, with whom I've been walking, and they start... <laughs> there's one guy in particular... I'm not sure if there was more than one. One guy at one occasion just started yelling about death to the Arabs, like in Beverly Hills and, and its environments. And that's not really the, the type of yelling that I want to be associated with. But this guy wasn't just, you know, gratuitously angry at Arabs for, for just absolutely no reason. But he was Israeli and he'd experienced the Arab-Israeli conflict on, on a very personal and intense level. And because he held the lives of Jews as sacred, he therefore would invalidate the claims of those who are competing with Jews for supremacy over this part of the Middle East, Arabs. And so because he loves Jews, he therefore hates Arabs, just like because Mel Gibson loves a traditional understanding of the role of Jesus in the great play of, of salvation. Therefore, he naturally un understands those who would invalidate the claims of Jesus as being of the devil. So this is... Uh, very revealing moment from Dennis Prager. The reason I'm devoting so much time to my Bible commentary, which is a Torah commentary, is I know how they've influenced me. At you'll, I don't think I've ever said this publicly. That's one of the beauties of our podcast. It's, it forces me to say things yes. that I don't normally say. At a certain point, I don't remember when, but it was early on. I said to myself, wow, you, your instincts are identical to the Torah's. You blew my mind. Your 
my natural mode of thinking was the Torah's mode of thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's why I feel such a moral obligation to get it in print. Because if you take those five books seriously, you will think morally clearly. You will think clearly about everything. And you'll be so much happier. Yeah, well, you could testify. Oh, my God. I mean, he's offering a magic key to how the world works, right? Just imagine how intoxicating it must feel to believe that your instincts are identical to God's instincts, right? You don't have to do the work, all right? Your instincts, you're just aligned with God. If you feel something, that's God feeling something. If you sense something, that's God sensing something. If you believe something, that's God believing something, all right? You and the creator of the universe are essentially one. I I mean, I I can just only... I can just only guess. I can just only, you know, yearn for, for that level of, of self-confidence, right? So just imagine what kind of public performer, pundit, radio talk show host, speaker, and writer you could believe, be if you genuinely believed that your instincts were one with the creator of the universe, with the master of the universe, the man who runs the universe. You and the man are one that you are on a mission from God, and therefore you have the magic key, the Torah. Guys, if you just understand the Torah, you'll know everything you need to know about happiness. You'll know everything you need to do know about evil. You will know everything you need to know about everything, just from the Torah, in particular, from reading Dennis Prager's commentary on the Torah. So if you just go to the Torah, you you probably won't understand it. But if you go to Dennis Prager's commentary on the Torah, which is really God's commentary on himself. So if you want to unlock the mysteries of the universe, if you want to unlock the mysteries of history, you want to unlock the mysteries of happiness, if you want to unlock the mysteries of the human condition, right? you read Dennis Prager's Torah commentaries because Dennis Prager's Torah commentaries are really God's commentaries on God. These are Dennis, you know, Dennis Prager slash God's glosses on God's words. And once you understand these things, all your problems in life will be saved. You will become happy. You will understand the nature of evil. You will have the answer to everything. Wow. I mean, your life will, society will run better. Your life will run better. Personally, you will feel enriched and fulfilled and happier. It's, I really think, and I know it sounds sort of, this is like, this is far more hilarious than Richard Spencer's Charlottesville rant. I mean, you can see the effect that he's had on this young woman and why so many of her friends have, have come to the conclusion that she's been brainwashed and, and joined a cult. Sort of extreme or perhaps um, like I'm hyperbolizing to say it. I think it's the answer to everything. Oh, I know it's the answer it to is. everything. That's why it's frustrating that it isn't out there more. I know. As much as it's out he knows it's the answer to everything. What's the answer to everything? Dennis Prager's instincts. Because Dennis Prager's instincts are identical with the Torah's instincts, which are identical to God's instincts. And they are the answer to everything. Dennis Prager is the answer to everything because Dennis Prager and God are one and the same. Right? You know, Dennis Prager is part of God. And God is part of Dennis Prager. They are aligned unlike any other union. Out there, the mo- my biggest frustration is it's not out there more. This is the answer to evil. Yeah, his biggest frustration is not out there more, meaning his biggest frustration is that I'm not out there more. I, Dennis Prager, that I'm not the number one most talked about person. 
that I am not the most influential person in the universe, that uh, not everyone is studying the thoughts of Dennis Prager in school. Evil or even unhappiness. Mm -hmm. You know, I said this. I, I know I said the first part on our podcast, but I said the second part in the PragerU video I just filmed, and I think it's worth mentioning here. You know that I think it's incredibly creepy that people my age fight against things that most of them have never seen before. Racism, climate change. Oppression. Okay. Oh, my God. If only I could have that level of, of self-confidence, man. Guys, I have the answer to everything. Because my instincts are identical to the creator of the universe. So when I'm speaking to you, it's really God speaking to you. Do you, do you, feel, do you feel God knocking on your heart right now through my words? <laughs> Man, I, I, I just suck compared to that. I, because I, I don't believe that my instincts are identical to, to God's instincts. And the titular topic for today is the latest uh, Trump indictment. And I'm going to talk to you about, you know, understanding the latest Trump indictment. I don't think I've been enough to make it through one article on the latest Trump indictment. So I, I really know, I, I really know, Bupkis, I, I really know nothing about the, the latest Trump indictment. And yet I do have an absurd level of uh, self-confidence and, you know, ego to think that, you know, I can say something useful. Uh, and, and what I'm using is, is my own uh, reaction to trying to read about the latest Trump indictment. So here's the, here's the background. When I would read about Russiagate, how Russia supposedly fixed the, the 2016 elections for, for Donald Trump, or how Russia you know, interfered with our democratic politics, I would just get so bored. I, I just could not soldier on through any long article on that topic. It was just, just the most painful, odious work because it just did not ring true to me. And so, too, with this latest Trump indictment, I just can't soldier on through it. It just doesn't strike me as particularly important. And I don't really care one way or another if Trump is indicted. I, I don't care that much whether Trump is, is found guilty. I, I, I believe that Trump has been negligent with these documents. I believe he's been criminally negligent with these documents. From the little I know, I think he's probably you know, very much worthy of a misdemeanor with regard to his handling of classified documents. But, you know, if they lock him up or don't lock him up, I'm not sure I really, really care that much. But uh, let's let's get some commentary here from uh, Mickey Kaus and Robert Wright. The Pentagon Papers. And you know what law they were charging him on, Bob? The okay, Espionage Act. So let me go back. And, um, he's done a lot since War Games. Um, uh, well, that's, uh, how old was he? 90s? He was 89. I talked to his son who was, okay. it was called Mosquito Island. Sounds inauspicious, but it was, it was M-O-S-K-I-T-O, named after an Indian tribe that had inhabited it. Uh, you know, the Caribbean, I'm trying to think if it was in the, uh, I think it was in the Virgin Islands, but I'm not even sure which Virgin Islands. I don't um, even have the, okay. the time um, stamp right. I'm so uh, Also, Daniel Ellsberg died. Correct. Do you have a take on him? Uh, for you younger folks, he leaked the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times and those that, you know, they were, that was this, I gather, massive report about the origins of the Vietnam War that wasn't entirely flattering for the U.S., uh, Basically, the Pentagon Papers basically argued it was a stalemate machine. We weren't going to win, but we put in and kept adding troops and money to avoid losing. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that was, you know, it was not uh, an imperialist war of aggression to extract minerals or something. Uh, it was just a Johnson's political calculation run amok. Um, uh, anyway, I think Ellsberg is, I, I don't know him that well. He was this crazy guy who used to hang around 
my college newspaper and everybody wondered who he was with his curly oh, hair. Wait, so you and, actually had personal contact with him? I probably saw him once or twice. Older people had more contact with him. But, um, and uh, uh, he was a nice guy. Everybody liked him. But what was he doing hanging around? And then it turned out he was the hero of the Pentagon Papers. Um, I think history is, he's one of the people who you, you have to think history is going to be very nice. He seems to have had a pretty benign impact uh, on the world, uh, even to, you know, improving it. Uh, uh, they dismissed the charges against him uh, for releasing the Pentagon Papers. And you know what law they were charging him on, Bob? The Espionage Act. The Espionage Act. And one of the things... You know how I knew that? Because that's what they're charging Trump on. Right. And I, and I could just sense a Trump segue coming. Well, the, there's an Espionage Act segue because the Espionage Act segue, what they're charging Trump on, was always in a bad odor with First Amendment people and the press. It was basically enacted during the Woodrow Wilson era. Need, need I say more to anybody from Princeton? I mean, he whose name shall not be mentioned. I'm not the, the, I, States and, I am not the one who canceled him. Uh, and, well, he was eminently cancelable because this was, a, you know, during World War One, which was a stupid, our intervention was questionable, let's say. If he, you know, he wanted to stamp out dissent, and one of the ways he did it was by passing all sorts of anti-speech acts and also uh, the Espionage Act, which said, if you have a document and you retain it and you know it could be used against the United States, that somehow you're guilty. Well, that's a pretty loose standard. Uh, you know, it doesn't require classified. You don't have to have a classified document. It has to be national defense information, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it's a, like incredibly loose, uh, irresponsible statute to pass. Uh, and that's one of the problems the Trump prosecution is going to have to have. Uh, but there is a Trump segue here. And, you know, Peggy Noonan wrote a very good column today, basically. I, I'm allergic to all the hype involved in terms of, oh, you know, Trump pressured the president of Ukraine to do his own political bidding. Well, you know, we now know that there was maybe something sleazy going on with Biden. He wanted to find and, out about uh, it. I mean, let's not make too big a deal of it. And this, you know. Uh, Stephen J. James, how's it going, bro? Yo, Luke Ford, long time listener, first time caller. How are you doing? <laughs> Yeah, pretty good, mate. Pretty good. So, uh, when did you start live streaming? Okay, so this is what people want to hear, I guess, the backstory. Um, so, I think it was about a year and a half ago. I can't even remember, to be honest, um, but somewhere around then. Um, and I didn't start live streaming at first. I started making videos. I did it walking my dog. And I piece them together and come back and, p- and post them online. And uh, some people start to watch them, I guess. Got some of your, your audience somehow. Uh, that's about it, really. And what kind of effect has it had on your life, becoming a live streamer? Uh, not much at all, really. Um, it hasn't really panned out as I expected. Um Kind of at the start, I, I had this idea that I could build a channel maybe, but then I decided um, after seeing how the internet had been bad for various people um, and how and like some people have got doxxed, some people's lives have been ruined, as you, as you point out all the time. Uh, I, didn't wa- I didn't want to go on camera and stuff. And so rather than talking about political stuff, which isn't my forte anyway, this has kind of just become like my personal diary on the internet, really. Um, and so kind of at this stage, I don't even know why I'm still doing it, really. Isn't that funny? Do you, do you ever find it intoxicating? Because I know that I often find it absolutely intoxicating when I get the sense sure. that, you know, some people are like really listening to me and that I have an effect on people. It's like, whoa, I mean, for me, that's a high. Sure, there is a high. There's a high when you do a good stream, but there's also a low when you do a bad one, isn't there? It's always, yeah. always terrible. If you if you feel like you've really messed up, 
<laughs> that can be bad. And that's why one of my rules, which I, I've been putting out recently, is that as soon as you've done something bad, partic particularly on the internet, is you just got to come back with another banger, really. Get straight back onto it. Yeah, it's like falling off a horse. You know, you don't go home and take a shower. You, you got to get back on the horse. Yeah. I've just seen, uh, that's a really bad crop of me on, on, on the stream, isn't it? So how about I, I turn my camera off and we go no, back to... I mean, I don't care. You can do what you like, but I mean, the, the crowd is just going wild, man. They're, they're looking at the definition in your bicep. I'm sure they are. Sure they are. I mean, you got um, really strong wrists too. Okay. Uh, well, sorry to dis disappoint the audience, um, but I think we'll go. Let's go to the icons, and that'll make me uh, more comfortable here. I think. Yeah. No worries. We want you to feel comfortable. Nothing good in life happens until. You know, other other people that you're engaging with, you know, feel feel comfortable. So, you've hosted, you know, people on your stream. Uh, anyone as much as Claire Core? Is she your number one guest? Yeah, I started with Claire Core. Um, so I guess Claire Core took my internet virginity there, and she's kind of been. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. How. Um, I've kind of got used to talking to Claire. She's she's actually a fun girl who knows how to have a good time if you keep her off her own uh, topics. So she can be fun as long as you don't really let her ramble on about secular Quranism. So would she be like your Mrs. Robinson? Yes, that's what I was kind of alluding to there, I guess. <laughs> and uh, how, how would you compare the experience of... Uh streaming alone versus streaming with someone else for me it's like the difference between masturbation and having sex with somebody yeah i think i'm the opposite right because i still find uh, this kind of thing really awkward um talking to other people on the internet i've i've kind of got into this groove i'm just switching on my phone camera and when i'm doing that i'm really in the zone and i can be super comfortable but like doing this now is a difficult thing for me. Hmm. Are you more introverted or extroverted by nature? Um, I think I'm an A. It's weird, is this? That that's a weird question. I think I'm a. Um, I think I'm introverted. Who's who? Who's forced to get on a stage? at times um because like I, okay in my in my personal life i uh, do I, I do sporting competition and when i'm doing that i'm literally on a stage in a ring uh in front of like hundreds of people um but i'm not naturally that guy at all so it's a weird one well i think most performers are actually the same way like most actors stand-up comics i don't think they're naturally extroverted they put on a persona when they go on stage and then they retreat into their shell off stage yeah i've heard somebody say that confidence is just um like the faking of confidence is that what you mean well it's it's the strapping on of a, of a persona that that is adaptive to the situation that you walk into so people strap on a persona when they do a job interview right mm -hmm. you're not going to tell your 
potential employer what you're really like as an employee. Sure. I think familiarity is how you get gain confidence, in my opinion. So essentially, I just haven't done much of this. I haven't talked to many people on the internet yet. Um, in real life, I can um, I can be nervous about meeting somebody uh, in a situation, but I can go there and I can do like the the feigned confidence thing, and then I am confident about it thereafter. Uh, but situations like uh, this, I just haven't done much. Uh, conversations like like this really i've talked on my own show i've opened up about it how um I'm n i was nervous about talking to colin liddell uh, really really nervous and fun felt like i was fumbling it and uh, the other few interviews that i've done on my channel um so does that get better over time were you like that at the start yeah i mean colin liddell's also he's quite intimidating to talk to you should hear my first interview with him i like i really you know rubbed him wrong the first minute you know i made some <laughs> off-color jokes and and he, you know he kind of called me on it and you know i snapped right. into line and became much more respectful after that yeah he's also got i mean typical scottish uh, demeanor he's dry he's serious to a point but also you know there's something like uh under there that could really cut you cut you down if you uh, uh speak out of turn so uh yeah intimidating uh at first uh, and i'm naturally deferential at first to everybody really um, so but it's all it's all so anyway uh, i've opened up about this i even did a stream before coming on here saying luke ford's asked me to stream um and uh, i feel awkward about it yeah so. yeah uh have you told people in your real life about your online life so there are a couple of people who know, um, and they, uh, yeah, then they're, they're not political though. So, um, they just don't care. So I think they watched a this was say about six months or eight months ago. And I'd be talking about topics that were really niche to do with the alt-right and things like that, the dissident right and characters in it which have been some of my most popular videos. So my most po popular content has been when I've been making fun of the various uh, broken and weird characters in the distant right. I've had a go at them, made fun, made jokes. Um, and so I think they tuned in at that time. And then they've just basically tuned out because they've not said anything in a long time. But certainly they know about it. Uh, and uh, yeah. So, Who my uh, mom knows. <laughs> and what does your mom think of Richard Spencer? So she wouldn't be able to name him uh, if she saw a picture of him, I don't think. And uh, how, they're just apolitical you, people. Yeah. How, how does your mom feel about me and grooming, you know, me grooming you? <laughs> so unfortunately, she wouldn't know you either if she, if she saw you. So, <laughs> so unless she's hiding something, you know, from me i mean she never brought it up never brings up she never brought up richard spencer like these are the topics that i've talked about probably more frequently than others um so that, i think if if she continues to watch I, i'd be very i'd be very surprised if she continued to watch my channel even though she does know it yeah yeah i, I remember i think uh dennis, dennis prager's mum said to him you know, I could listen to you for free and I don't listen. Why would anyone you know, pay you to give a speech? 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the people in our lives, we've got to be thankful they love us for who we are, um, not the things that come out of our mouths, you know? Yeah. So I found, and I instinctively knew this before I even did it, when I started writing on the pornography industry, my, my website gained you know enormous attention, over, over 10,000 unique uh, visitors a day because I didn't really have much competition. You know, for a long time, I was the only person you know, blogging, yeah. uh, you know, news under the porn industry on a daily basis. So too with the alt-right, if you have anything, if you bring anything to the table, you can garner comparatively a huge audience because you're not really competing with anyone else. Like, because no one in polite society, nobody with anything to lose is going to write on a regular basis about either the pornography industry or the alt-right. So marginalized losers like me can come along and have an enormous audience in both of these areas because there's very little competition. So that's how I understand why both of us can gain an enormous audience, for example, talking about the alt-right compared to you know pretty much any other topic that we focus on. What's your understanding of this? Yeah, well, you came, you came into it right at the key moment, didn't you? Um, or maybe just after, yeah. to be fair. Maybe yeah. just after. If you'd have been on it a couple of years in a, earlier, um, when I discovered this phenomenon was uh, growing, was uh, a little earlier than I than I thought at first. I thought it, I'd been introduced to it through your show, but it's not actually the case. I because my entry point into this was like um, typing on the internet looking for Richard Spencer. Uh, so I was already aware about Richard Spencer, and then I found you were covering. Richard Spencer at the uh, Michigan event and you sat talking to Babylonian Hebrew back in the day. So you're not actually the guy who's groomed me into it. So you, I can let you off the hook for that. Um, I came looking for this type of thing. I was already looking and I found you. Um, but so that was like 2018. That was like after the war ski thing with Richard Spencer. So if you'd been there a couple of years earlier, actually, uh, video blogging about the Trump phenomenon. Uh, well, actually, I did start in 2015. I, I did my first live stream in uh, 2015 with Vivian Veritas and her sister. Okay. Okay. And how did those go? I mean, did you I get think much they're traction? pretty good. Yeah. I mean, not not at the time. We're talking for, for like two and a half years. I'd only get like 10 live viewers, which is what I get now. But... Um, then I went on Warski live and there were like 2,500 live people uh, watching. Yeah. And then that was then a my heyday. Audience, yeah, that was, that was January, a heyday of the old right. January 2018. So after that, I got so excited that I started doing shows every day. So from 2015 to January 2018, and he did shows once a week. And yeah, I were your shows built around were, the Torah portion. Were the ones right. before that, you said in 2015, were they like explicitly um political or were they uh like themed over the torah stuff uh, they were both so i, I like. figured that the the torah was like a safe way to talk about alt-right politics like you okay, know yeah. you embrace the language of the torah you know wrap yourself in the mantle of the torah you know wash my soul in the the wellsprings of torah and then I can, you know, tackle and discuss topics that are, you know, otherwise considered, you know, too polluted for polite society. Yeah, it's a bit of a niche audience, though, isn't it? Branding <laughs> it as the Torah. Yes. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of fun. But for two and a half years, I'd have uh, Professor Casey on and Dennis yeah. Dale and, and Vivian. But we'd only have like, you know, 10, 15 live viewers. I think we maxed out like 55 when I had Kevin McDonald on. Yeah. So look, I've said to everybody, um, I was watching at least from just before you went on Warski, uh, whenever Richard Spencer did that Michigan thing. Yeah, that was like March or April of 2018. Right. So anyway, yeah, around, I'm sure that's how I found your channel. Um, yeah, so somewhere around them. And I've said that at that time, in those proceed, uh, preceding or um, following months, you were doing some of the best interviews on the alt-right. You were interviewing everybody, including the man himself, Richard Spencer, multiple times, like for three hours at a time. Um, so it's amazing that your show didn't, grow uh to something much more and it, i don't know what the reason is that you've you didn't end up like with over a thousand views do you think it was your own self like sabotaging or, or do you think something else um stopped you from developing that so i i'd say one i didn't put enough attention to the technical quality of the show so mm. it, it wasn't until I think 2019, I, I went and got voice lessons. So prior to, to that, I had a monotone voice. Uh, it wasn't until like 2020 that I went out and spent $500 on an audio consultation. So somewhere around 2020, 2021, I finally got my audio quality figured out. You know, I had to spend hundreds of dollars to consult with somebody. Uh, that, that helped. Then I was hitting hitting my stride, but then the Kaufness critique came out, and I embraced that with such enthusiasm. Oh yeah, that was it. That and was it. You turned the audience I, off. I turned off my audience, and I turned <laughs> off almost everybody that I co-hosted with, including me at the time. By the way, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because um, you went full full Kaufness, didn't you? I went, I went the full <laughs> Kaufness, and so uh, Casey yeah. didn't want to stream with me regularly anymore. Uh, soon, Dennis Dale didn't want to stream with me regularly almost nobody on the alt right wanted to stream with me much anymore and then in june of i remember that so much then yeah. I, in in may of 2018 i lost brundlefly like uh his you know his wife said you can't yeah. you can't do this so when <laughs> he, those were great shows when i did them with with brundle but once i lost brundle I lost Casey, yeah. I lost Dennis Dale, and I brought on board Kevin Michael Grace, who is a phenomenal yeah. streamer, but uh, a lot of other people then dropped off. The, the, yeah. the, the group chat component of the show died largely yeah. when I brought on Kevin Michael Grace. And you know I deferred to him because he's a man of such enormous charisma and learning. He, he's just got such a... a force field about him and mm. so he would he would he wanted to do a structured show mm -hmm. didn't he oh, about news yeah. and yeah and punditry and that yeah. worked for a long time there, but that there are itself became stale a, yeah there are advantages to a structured show but there are also advantages to an unstructured show so what happened was is i lost many most of the advantages of the unstructured show that i was doing and it's not that you know kevin michael grace is the bad guy or he's the reason there are all sorts of reasons that that eliminated the gang that i was streaming with 
And I am yeah. not someone who has a Kevin Michael Grace style force field of, of personality or a Dennis Prager force field of personality who can compel an audience on my own charisma alone. You know, I, I can't do that. I need other people. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. So you cultivate one audience and then you switched it up and then you start to cultivate that audience, but the other one was alienated by that. And so there's been the multifactual things. What I want to say is that if you think back to the start though, Luke, if you think back to the early initial days, like the Google Hangout days, you know, nobody was complaining about the audio or the amateur content, were they? About the amateur nature of it. Everybody kind of just, lo uh, just loved it and mucked in. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you've got compelling content, that that uh, tends to trump, you know, every other uh, possibility. And, you know, I just had so many different people coming on the show from, you know, we had this Arab guy, we had, you know, we had this trans... The, you know, the Iraqi trans, guy. Whatever. Iraqi guy we had we had such you know enormously wide so we'd have like Jews talking to Nazis you know almost every every night and so that was, was what was compelling yeah that was what was compelling to me yeah listening I wanted to know about obviously I wanted to know about this Jewish question um and just in my previous video before I came on here uh Brundlefly counseled me not to talk about the Jewish question. Okay, so let's tread carefully. But uh, this was obviously like the, at the heart of the alt-right, wasn't it? Yeah. This was what yes. everybody was talking about and debating on Warski. And on your show was the place where the Jews were there debating it out with like the Wignats, the, 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 hard, the hardest core ones. Uh, they come on your show and they battle it out and and although you would attempt to um you would attempt to referee i think in a fair way and uh sure some of the, like the wignats would be put their nose would be put out of joint or whatever that they couldn't get away with maybe saying the harshest stuff i can't remember if they were allowed to back then maybe you allowed them i can't exactly remember but um everybody kind of appreciated the platform there where it would happen and some people have said to me look uh, the jewish question was discussed on other shows such as heel turn far more uh openly than on luke ford show but i said no luke ford show was a place where the jews were talking about it with the wignats and it was being battled out um and so it, to me it was a unique space and i i was interested in these ideas um were being thrown around at the heart of the alt-right and i even remember back in the day kind of a little after duvid had come on your show and a discussion between like melky and uh, dennis dale and brundle and there was like this discussion going on about a potential <laughs> it sounds so so bizarre now looking back but that there was like this potential in the air that the alt-right could feel it, that there was this potential in the air, that the Jewish question was being raised to such a high point. And they were winning arguments so much that they were bringing a potential like negotiation with the Jews about, do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, heady days from, from an alt-right perspective. When... It feels so bizarre now, looking back. I mean, so many people really believed that the alt-right had elected Donald Trump 
and essentially yes. elected put you know a friend in the white house yeah yeah so how influential do you think it was whether he I, was a friend or not how influential do you think the uh, actual alt right uh, like Richard Spencer seems to think that he still had a huge influence on bringing Trump to the White House, doesn't he? Yeah, he believes essentially he elected Donald Trump in 2016. Yeah. I w would not say that. I, I don't think it was particularly influential. It was for for a time you know, an area filled with great jokes and some intellectual excitement. Hillary Clinton was worried enough to make that speech, though, wasn't she? Which utterly yeah. backfired. Yeah, the uh, the alt she named the alt right and the and then basket of deplorables, didn't she? And that guy famously during that speech yelled uh, just as she'd said it, Pepe. Yes, yeah. So, I, I Colin Liddell defining makes, moment. Yeah, Colin Liddell makes this point that up until about 2015, the alt right was primarily a written word movement, so it was much higher IQ. Yeah. Prior to the alt right primarily becoming a podcasting medium, where you didn't need to read books to have the confidence to you know make podcasts and, and memes so the average iq of the you know alt-right audience seemed to decline from you know 115 say in 2015 to like 95 by 2018 so there was a substantial intellectual degradation in the alt-right and simultaneously prior to charlottesville no one associated with the alt-right had killed anyone like you had white nationalists yeah. who killed anyone, but the alt right was primarily, in in the at least the the popular understanding was like primarily a kind of a, a humor movement online, and and no one was getting hurt and no one was getting killed. Then you had people yeah. associated with the alt right who started massacring people, and that made it a lot more difficult for me to just treat it as you know a fun and intellectually exciting movement. It suddenly became. A, a visceral threat to, among other institutions, synagogues. So even, let, let's say the alt-right is right about certain things, but when people, let, let's say they're even right when they're, you know, about certain things, when they go out and commit acts of terror, I can't, you know, I can't discuss their their assertions with absolute equanimity that, that I did in 2015 to 2018 once they start routinely slaughtering people. It just changes the whole environment sure. in which you talk about things sure no i and i fully appreciated that i really did um you know i'll get some pushback on this from from some people who watch this um i do actually um just for my association with coming from as i i, I phrase this all the time to people i say like i come from the kosher approved luke fordosphere of the alt-right and therefore, um, I'm like, um, in a, I, I think if the phrase I use, I'm kosher certified. Probably not, not the right. The right. <laughs> yeah, but it, it communicates something that I think uh, most people can understand. Yeah. And so I have a mixture on my channel of wignats who watch me, um, who are pretty hardcore, I think. And um, and then people from your scene who are watching at the same time. And the ones who are the wignats um they'll give me pushback and say you know like the the uh the horrible things about it but um being coming from this space whether it means that i've been essentially cucked onto the jewish question or not coming from this space did 
give me a sense of nuance that uh, I feel has served me well. Um, and I told David this um, when he came on a Claire Core stream a little while ago. Um, I think we, if anybody's interested, but I think the stream was where Claire and I were eulogizing Daniel Sinkowitz, who we think has died recently. Oh. Um, so, so Duvid came, <laughs> yeah, no, he devastated, right? <laughs> but, uh, Duvid came on that show and, um, I said to Duvid that, uh, I think that this interaction has been, uh, something of, it has been useful, this conversation that, that was had on your show and that Duvid does, whether people think he is, um, uh, whether he thinks it, then he's making it worse, accelerationist or not. Um, I know he gets that critique from the Jewish side, but I think this conversation has helped somebody like me, for instance, and to understand that at the very heart of it, even if premises about it are true, that it can be understood from the aspect uh of the fact that people, other groups do just act in their own interest, which is something that you make the point of all the time. And that you can understand this from a sense of groups acting in their own interest. And it's not necessarily the big bad wolf that it seems to be when it's presented in the framing of the alt-right and the conspiratorial side of it. Have I made any sense at all? Yeah, yeah, perfectly. That Different groups have, have different different interests and so the the interests of jews and the interests of arabs you know clash such as over the existence of the modern, modern jewish state the interests of christians the interests of jews the interests of muslims and the interests of homosexuals for example frequently clash to be you know pro-homosexuality is essentially to be anti-judaism and anti-christianity and to be pro-christianity and pro-judaism is to be anti-gay sure uh i the problem with the alt-right is like that they they can point at the problem or what you know i don't want to call it the problem i don't mean it like that that um i think the old wig at 1.0 or white nationalism 1.0 framed it as the jewish problem didn't they that was yeah. how um oh what was this guy the guy who was the head of the alliance he used to do that radio show william luther pierce he used to do that radio show and name it the Jewish problem. Am I right about that? Yes. Yeah. And then kind of it was reframed the Jewish question. Um, basically, well, you're pointing, you're gone. Go on, go on, I was just going to say well, what, I, one analogy that I find useful is that of invasive species. So eucalypti, for example, when they're transported to California or to other places in the world are frequently an invasive species, they outcompete native plant life and they suck up enormous amounts of water and they can present a substantial fire hazard and so i think invasive species is a natural biological way of understanding uh group conflicts between you know human groups yeah i wouldn't want to go as far as to call jews an invasive species i did i mean i don't think i could get away with that in the united kingdom anyway <laughs> So I'm going to pull back on that analogy, but, um, well, basically the, I, I failed Brundlefly anyway. I've come on here and I've started talking about the Jewish question. So I'm sorry, dude, 
you cancelled me against this, but I did it straight away. Um, but basically what I want to say is that I understand it from a competition perspective, and this tempers it, really. It puts a nuanced p- perspective on it. And somebody like David and yourself and that help to humanise something which otherwise seems like a dark and dastardly plot against white people <laughs> as framed by the alt-right. Um, but when you look at it, it can just be seen as competition. And the onus really is upon us to perform better. Yeah, when when another group perhaps yeah. excels you in some way, you know, do, do you want to focus on blaming the other group or do you want your group to lift its game? Yeah, exactly. And the alt-right, unfortunately, uh, had uh, too much emphasis upon pointing the finger and saying, even though it was reframed as the question. Um, but I remember William Pierce used to, uh, I did, I did, I admit it, listen to a few of those and they've been passed around. And he used to go and rail about the Jewish problem and all the bad things. And um, But anything can be made out to be you can make out one side of something to look so bad and so dastardly um and organized and i'll get a lot of pushback for the from for explicitly cooking on this stuff by the way here from the, the you know the wignut side of the aisle uh, but uh i don't care this this is actually uh, the nuanced take that I've acquired from it. And um, I don't think there's enough about redressing uh, our own um, lack of um, lack of competitive abilities here. There, there's, there's groups who are out-competing us as white, straight, Christian men, and uh, we're not doing a good enough job. And... Um, if we just competed, we, we'd be back in the race, really. So uh, most people who've touched on the topics that you've touched on on your live streams have blown up their lives. How have you been able to navigate without blowing up your life? Um, so uh, to mention earlier, uh, on the stream where I was mulling over coming on your channel that, um, and I think I touched on it earlier that I'd seen what's happened to, uh, the people, uh, in the old ride that came, came on, say your show or, or on periphery shows, how, um, it led to the destruction of lives and things like this, this, and, um, essentially I made the decision. I wasn't, I wasn't going to face docs. Uh, but I've done everything other than that, basically. Um, or were you asking about uh, were you asking about how I've dealt with the ideas? I think the ideas came from just uh, taking a nuanced path, uh, but rather than being just like um, accelerated down an alt right pipeline, I somehow end up uh, in getting um, also two sides of the same coin from something like your show, and so I didn't end up like um, radicalized into any of the other 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 camps i just found them annoying um just like you know thick-headed and um 
really threatening a lot of a lot of them like the wig naturally side of it so um, would you go to a march you know for white rights no <laughs> i wouldn't go to any protest on the street at all because i think you know i'd be self-serving in that thing i don't think anything anything good comes of that kind of thing um and i think all you're doing is putting a target on your head doing that kind of thing so maybe that's just self-serving but um in every single instance uh, some of them have been absolute disasters um and i think it could have been known in hindsight uh sorry in foresight that these things were set up to be disasters um some people saw in advance that like charlottesville had the potential to become a disaster didn't they yes yeah and, and then it's kind of stunning that so many people including people with with phds and and very you know high status jobs who did not see that and they showed up to charlottesville and they ruined their lives yeah now in hindsight in hindsight nobody could have well maybe i'm just contradicting myself here i don't know i was going to say nobody could have in hindsight known that a guy was going to uh mow down a bunch of people um whether it was accidental or I tend to think uh, he was a like a deeply autistic guy who got lost on the way out, panicked, hit the accelerator, there were people hitting the back of the car. I don't think it was, but however, however it turned out, it history will remember it as uh, a terrorist attack, however it went down. So I don't think, I don't know if in foresight you could have expected that to happen, but god uh so certainly after that um you have to be aware of that something like that could happen and then the whole thing would be tarred with that and you would uh like history would then be remembering that you were part of something like that hmm. so there's an enormous uh wignat audience out there that it, that uh their needs are not getting met that's why you can get an enormous audience uh you know kenneth brown uh, Deep Left Jokal, you know, knows this and you've experienced this and I've experienced this when you touch on Wignat topics. There's an enormous audience of Wignats who are not getting their needs met online and they will just flock to anything you produce. On the other hand, this tends to be a frequently low IQ, antisocial audience that is very dangerous to appeal to. So on the one hand, one can do, you know, non-Wignat streams with relatively low viewership numbers or you can do streams that are very dangerous to your well-being, but appeal to an enormous number of wignats. So do you, do you agree with this assessment? Yes, I do. I think the wignat crowd, I'll get pushback for, for just um, speaking in what I, I guess must come across and probably is intended to be condescending here. I think we are both speaking condescendingly about what we term wignats and i think that's fair to say because that's what we're intending to do and i'll get pushback for it because some of these people see me as their own um i've never really existed in that camp uh but the majority of them luke hate hate me too anyway uh, but some of them feel like i should be more like them and um you know that <laughs> they'll say things to me you know uh, 
to that effect. Um, but not much good does come of them. And it's an ever-accelerating group. It's an ever-purity-spiling group. And you can really never satisfy um, their, their sensibilities and their wants unless uh, you are always taking the most hardcore, radical position um, on all of these topics, um, which I just don't agree with anyway. Yeah, and uh, have you experienced or struggled with the the dangerous powers of the e personality? I don't think I have. Uh, no, I don't think I have. <laughs> Could that be a sign that I have? I don't know. What does that mean? Um, yeah. Well, let me spell out what it means. So when people go online and start sharing their views about life and, and the world mm -hmm. and race relations, they tend to very quickly develop an overestimate of their own abilities, their own importance. They tend to speak and act spontaneously rather than with the caution that one would exhibit in real life. And they tend to share dark things that they normally wouldn't share in face-to-face -face interactions. So those are the principal perils of the e-personality. I know that I've frequently sure. succumbed to them, but how about you? So, um, my, my immediate sense here is no. My immediate sense here is that I'm always um, kind of holding myself back whenever I go and I start talking on the internet. So maybe I, maybe I have a false sense of myself. Um, but I'm always very careful because I live in the United Kingdom. Um, and essentially, um, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I always say this. I'm not super intellectual. But I'm smart enough. I, I've got street sense enough to know what I can and cannot get away with in terms of the law, unlike some idiots over here who seem to be totally, uh, blissfully, or not blissfully even, un unaware of this fact, that in the United Kingdom you can't say certain things, and also that you can't hide from your government or the police force, uh, just like by me being pseudo-anonymous. Uh, if they want over here, they can very easily contact the internet companies and find out who you are, they will come and put your door through at 4 a.m. And you will get arrested and things like that for actual um, breaches of hate, hate speech regulations, which we have over here. So this has been like a tempering factor to the things that I say. Now, it's also restrictive. I also don't know how to phrase certain things and go about talking about certain topics. So it, it's difficult. Um, not that I have any radicalized views. I might have you. Like I say, I tend to have a, a nuanced opinion about these things. Basically, as I said before about group, um, uh, group interests acting out in their own interest. I don't know if I answered the question. Yeah, yeah. So... Here's, here's something that I suffer from. I'm just curious if, if you struggle with the, the same thing. I kind of walk around in a stunned amazement that the world hasn't yet discovered how amazing I am. 
I walk around kind of stunned that I'm not at least a United States senator. You know, I'm stunned that I don't have a nationally syndicated radio or, or TV show where I could be, you know, bestowing my rules for life. Seriously? Seriously. Seriously. I, I mean, I wish it wasn't true. You know, I have such a... I, I'm just telling you about a feeling. Like, when I rationally think about it, you know, obviously... The thing is, though, Luke, you might yeah. not be far wrong because, I mean, I've come on here and, you know, I've... Um, to your face, you've just got somebody on your show right now. To your face, he said, like, you you know, you could have uh, done much better. So maybe just because saying things like that about yourself is generally considered to, like, be uh, somebody whose ego is way out of line for their own stature. Maybe maybe in your case, it actually is. A, <laughs> you know, in some, in to some people, uh, they are actually thinking correctly. So maybe... In that case, it is it is a crying shame that you don't have a, a national syndicated radio show, and that's not thinking too much of yourself. But what about you? Do you walk around in stunned amazement that the world hasn't discovered yet what a genius you are? No, no, not particularly. I, in terms, are you asking just about live streaming here? Uh, um, just oh. in general. I mean, I, I often think, oh man, what I've got to say is so funny or so piercing you know there, there should be like a massive audience for, for this uh but what about you probably the complete opposite actually i mean i've i put myself down a lot i'm self-denigrating uh to a point that people i think notice have noticed it but they have noticed it because they say it to me why 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 are you putting yourself down on it but i i'm acutely aware of my own limits um in the I'm not an intellectual guy, so frequently in situations, I know that I am outcompeted intellectually by others, um, and I'm frequently like worried that it'll, it'll stray into areas where uh, I'll just look like a complete fool. Um, and I don't know if this is partly ADHD or partly just being stupid I, I call it just being stupid but or partly like a um entire history of engaging in combat sports i'll be honest with you i don't know if it's adhd or or taking part in combat sports that um, gives me this but anyway the top and bottom of it is that i walk around with kind of um an inferiority complex rather than a superiority complex does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I remember I was 40 years old and I was at a, a talk on a Friday night on a Shabbat from this woman who was a psychologist and something of a leader in Orthodox Judaism. And she gave a talk on marriage. And then after a talk, we were able to ask questions. And I raised my hand. And I said, if you, if you met someone who was 40 and a bachelor in Orthodox Jewish life, what would be your immediate instinctive reactions? And she said, I would expect that the person had uh, a, a fear of success and a fear of failure. <laughs> so yeah. a fear of, of getting married, completing the deal, and also a disabling fear of not getting married. And either way, the fears were disabling the person's life. So are your fears disabling yeah. your life? Yeah, the, yeah, they do, I guess. I guess, that, I guess that's true. Um like in many ways, if I if I hadn't, if I 
hadn't developed some strategies, whether they're good or bad. Like um, I was able to put together my rules recently uh, and do uh, a video on each one of them. These are my strategies that I've cobbled together uh, to get through essentially being uh, an ADHD person, uh, as, I, as I put it, uh, and, and to go about in the world like with this a sense of myself um, as being like intellectually inferior. Um, if I hadn't have cobbled together various strategies or like this, uh, they would be disabling. And so, like for instance, I would not have come on your show probably, um, say a year a year ago, um, because uh, like the 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 expectation, the thought of how it would have gone would have prevented me from doing it. But uh, I've, one of the strategies I have is sometimes you just like have to jump in at the deep end and really should have done it before now. I shouldn't have put it off last week. I should have just done it. Uh, but I did it this week anyway. Uh, but this is like an example of um, how it could be disabling because a, a while ago I just wouldn't have done it at all. How does the world of counseling and psychotherapy go over among your friends? Um, I've never really talked talked about it to anybody. Um, if you told your friends that you're in counseling, that you know you you thought you had this or they'd that, laugh. Psych- they'd laugh. They'd laugh. They'd laugh. If you told your mum you're in counselling because you thought you had a fear of success, she'd be horrified. Yeah, she probably would. She'd think that I I was close to uh, being put in a nut house or something. There really is no culture of psychotherapy over here like uh, there is in the extent that there is in America. And what if you're about to compete in some kind of, uh, you know, fighting contest or mixed martial arts contest and you shared with your opponent, you know, some of the insights that you just gained from your counselor? (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, yeah, I wouldn't do that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. One of the one of the problems is at some point uh, this Internet presence and my my actual uh, I've said I compete in sports in the contact sport. At some point, this world and that world are gonna are gonna get combined, and I know it. Um, <laughs> and I kind of just am. Um, I've been hoping that I can um, basically get over my sporting days before um, I end up getting doxxed and identified as that guy. <laughs> so, um, so I, I take it that you've never had your potential ADHD examined by a psychiatric professional um as i was diagnosed as a kid um and so i had some of that but it it was through school um and so never in adult life um i could be on i could be on medication right now but um i can't i don't can't take anything like that because all those medications are essentially like amphetamine based um, and you can't take uh, certainly amphetamines or any of those substances uh, and uh, do competitive sports. So why do you think you might be ADHD? Oh, well, I was clinically diagnosed as a kid, about 10 years old. 
in through school. Uh, but um, a lot of people say, look, ADHD doesn't even exist. So there's there's that claim to get over over first. But ADHD just means it as a cluster of symptoms. Um, and so I exhibit these symptoms. Like I could, I, I used to be extremely. Um, I used to display the symptoms extremely uh, heavily of fidgeting as a child. I can, I mean, you know, they used to make me sit on my hands, uh, restless leg syndrome, and uh, not being able to sit still. But as an adult as well, it's just like having the cluster of symptoms of uh, not. Uh, being unable to um, um, conceptualize or whatever the word is um, to perceive the passage of time correctly that's the main one uh, that you can't you just the passage of time just really um, you just can't get scripts with it um, fl forgetting things losing things or this cluster of symptoms is what is known today as ADHD and I exhibit them so uh, Colin Liddell in the chat says that ADHD is a feminist plot. Do you agree with that? Uh, no, I just think it's a cluster of symptoms. Whether we want to call it ADHD or whether we just want to call it, um, you know, being whatever it is, I I'm open to it just being a case of being uh, low IQ uh, idiocy. Maybe years years ago it just used to be called idi idiocy, didn't it? Or uh, being a moron or something like that but today this group of symptoms is called adhd uh, but the, the thing is they've found out how to treat it pretty effectively with stimulants stimulants seem to have um, a, a good impact um, on the ordering of thoughts um, it allows adhd people to not be so uh, scatterbrained so how did it affect the quality of your life going on ADHD medication and then going off ADHD medication? Uh, so I was a child um, and, I, and I only took some medication for a very short amount of time. So effectively, I've been an unmedicated uh, ADHD patient for all the rest and most of my life, uh, certainly entirely as an adult. I'm off my meds, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what what would happen have to happen for you to think that you had a problem that was beyond your control and you needed to go back on your meds? Uh, I would I would never um, actually. So um, I mean I mean unless I be unless I became you know unable to function in, in the world which uh, i can't foresee happening um, i'm able to function as a person in the world uh, i'm not in danger of um, like forgetting to change my underpants or or being unable to drive a car or anything like that it's not that bad um so i would never do it because uh, i've also imbued this um personality uh of being what uh, i i call straight edge uh, of being of living drug free and alcohol free uh, which is something you can identify with can't you yes and so, what about... so the, Go ahead. the reason you the reason you won't have uh unless i'm mistaken like a glass of wine and a shabbat dinner or something 
is because you you have this you consider yourself teetotal don't you yeah yeah and also i'm aware that i have a lot of self-destructive compulsive uh, perhaps addictive tendencies and so there are certain things that i shy away from in case i enjoy them too much sure sure have you ever drunk yeah i'll, I'll have a mouthful of wine at a kiddish it's a jewish religious ceremony but i never i never yeah. drink for pleasure okay yeah so i don't take drugs yeah or never never taken drugs ever how about uh how about drugs have you played around with drugs no no not at all mainly because i do competitive sports um and uh in in and out of competition you are drug tested um and particularly uh around the the, the time of competition uh it's uh, such a, a huge list of medications that you can't take. So I once did a video about this, that um, if people want to keep their kids off drugs, particularly their boys, which I think is one of the most important things that uh, they can do for their boys, number one is to stop them from being bullied and get so therefore get them into a contact sport or something like that so that they can learn to defend themselves but two to keep them off drugs getting them into a competitive sport or a team sport where there's some kind of regular drug testing circuit uh some people find this shocking or whatever but it's a part of competitive sports that keeps your kids off of drugs it certainly did for me now it it m meant that i lost a lot of my friend groups um like i just wouldn't even be around somebody who was ever smoking weed or something like that I ter terrified that you know i could like inhale it and then it end up showing on a drug test um and so yeah i, I kind of uh, departed from a lot of my friends um but that was probably for a good thing that probably did me no harm and uh people who won't participate in in circle jerks also depart from a lot of their friends do you have a position on circle jerks oh, i get it i get it yes i'm anti i'm anti circle jerking so i'm not uh i'm not i'm not into that did that alienate you from your classmates um there was a gay kid in my in my class actually uh, but i didn't uh um you know i, I I don't think that this is another topic I brought up. I don't think Zoomers are as gay as what people make out. I think the world looks a lot. Uh, I think people see it through a lens that's not necessarily true, uh, because certainly, like the there was like one gay kid in my class at school, and he was bullied for it, uh, and everybody else kind of had the opinion. Um, which seems to be like the traditional approach. I hadn't seen it move on that much um, as to what, you know, what everybody's opinion seems to be of it today, that like everybody in a class is gay and circle jerking each other and whatever, and there's crannies everywhere. And I just haven't seen it, but maybe that's like a UK perspective. What about the people that you compete with? Uh, is there a high percentage of of gays no not at all um 
So, yeah, I would say one at the most. Would you describe the the competitive environment uh, around you as homophobic? Uh, only implicitly. Um, the problem, however, is that here's the problem: is that sports are being cucked and competitive sports are being overtaken by women. Okay, so um, and I, I, I don't mean um, obviously like obviously male and female sports are segregated. I mean all all the all the periphery of it, the organising, the uh, running of like councils and. Uh, associations of sports and things and certainly the uh, like um, team gb um which is a part of uh, like the great great british sporting for uh, the olympics and things like that and the and like the um anti-doping scene and all these councils and associations are becoming heavily feminized and run by women and <laughs> and black people <laughs> I don't know why, but the two. So they're becoming very cucked, and therefore there is this the opening um, of I can see I can see in in professional sports in organised sports that they are fully embracing like um, the the gay pride thing at the moment. Do you fight a, a woman? Say that again. Like say, say that again. Would you fight a woman? Like when you do your fighting competitions, would you be comfortable, you know, punching or wrestling or doing mixed martial arts with a woman? Absolutely not. Um, I mean, a, a woman would be in serious physical danger fighting any man. Um, certainly any man in their weight class. So all contact sports are done at weight classes. And these... Uh, like I, I would be in serious danger fighting somebody um, who is a few weight classes above me, and just for compet, just for competitive purposes, you would never fight somebody that's not even in your same weight class. Uh, that you know, that's just one weight class above you. Um, so uh, certainly in contact sports, anyway, you know, men and women would never be able to compete for that reason because they would never be able to get into the same weight class so it would have to undermine uh, the entire fabric of how contact sports are done for men and women to be able to compete because they just would never actually weigh the same and be able to fit into those classes what, what about a trans woman so a guy who is, uh, who is biologically male but identified as a woman would you feel comfortable engaging in contact sports with the he oh, sure absolutely that's very tolerant and open-minded of you absolutely um yeah it's got to treat people equally haven't you luke yeah <laughs> so fully accepting wonderful beautiful so what what role does uh, pornography play among your peers to the extent that people confide in you uh, pornography is prolific. Um, I think that, that the stigma of watching it has pretty much been taken away in the modern world. And so, I, I you know, I hate to admit it, but there is probably 
if I if I framed it like this, there is much more of the like uh, way that somebody like Andy Worski would would treat it in society and in my among my peer group than there would be uh, somebody who who would frown upon it, um, who would uh, take the anti pornographer stance. It's just like uh, something that. And how well, the, old how old were you when you were first exposed to hardcore pornography? Wow, this is, so this is getting personal now, Luke. Um, okay, so um, I can't, I can't. I mean, I can't remember. Fourteen, probably. And what kind of effect do you think that genre has had on your life? Not a lot, actually. Um, so I tend to underplay the significance of it. Um, I don't think that it is necessarily the you know like the worst evil in the world. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I I just take it. I just accept the fact that the fact that people want to look at it so much. Um, you know, means that you know, obviously that you know, a lot, a lot, this <laughs> this is a terrible question because I'm terribly difficult at framing framing an answer to it. I'm really struggling here, but basically, lots of people want still want to look at it, even though they know it's bad. Uh, nobody really thinks you know oh, the virtues of pornography is great, isn't it? I'll tell everybody I'm going home to watch a hardcore porn film today. People still do it, don't they? Their their preferences, their revealed preferences, show that they're still up for it. What do you think of the no fap movement? Uh, so uh, I don't know. Um, I think it is certainly useful to tell kids that they really, you know, uh, it. I think it's useful because it gets people to think about the topic and to at least put the idea into somebody's mind that um, like watching pornography and excessively masturbating, these kinds of things uh, are not healthy for you, which um, like in it, a lot, like I say, that a lot of people just don't even seem to think that it might be unhealthy for them. It is so ubiquitous these days, so easy to access, and um, its stigma has been removed so much that people seem to think it's normative behaviour. So, putting that forward like that, maybe you shouldn't be wanking every day, dude, isn't a bad idea. Yeah, what do you think is like excessive masturbation as opposed to a healthy level of wanking? Next question. Okay. Um, Andrew Tate. <laughs> Any thoughts on Andrew Tate? Um, I don't. Um, I don't. I'm not into the guy at all. I don't think he is uh, much of a role model for kids. Uh, a lot of kids seem to know uh, who Andrew Tate is more than their local politicians or things like that. So he, his influence is much bigger. And he deserves really, but it seems like a bit of a dickhead to me. Um, and he was never much for kickboxer, really, to be fair. 
Uh, he, I think his first his professional record started on two defeats, so um, it's certainly blown that up beyond what um, it, it, he deserves in terms of reputation. What about you? Yeah, I just find him so repulsive that uh, I... It's his influence among young people that's surprising. Yeah. Well, it's surprising in the sense that, you know, Alex Jones is influential among some people. Like, you know, I'm sure they're both influential among a subset of morons. Yeah, I think there was a survey done, though, um, just of, uh, like, high school school kids, high school boys, and something like 70% knew of them knew who Andrew Tate was, but none of them could name the Prime Minister or something like that. Or, or far less could name the Prime Minister, but they, they knew who Andrew Tate was. And how much attention have you paid to Millennial Woes? Um, so, Millennial Woes. Um, some. Certainly some. Because his Millennial is such a big fixture on the alt-right, isn't it? Yeah. So... He's he's somebody else who's walked into like a, a a goose that lays a golden egg there, and he his own uh, way of being is very disabling because he doesn't seem to realise like what a golden goose that thing is, uh, and, he's, and he he can't seem to use it as a springboard to better things. That's the only thing he can do. Uh, he's got it, and he and the gold, golden goose lays the golden eggs thirty times in December, and then that's it for another year. But it is what it is. It's a fixture on the alt right, and every year everybody gets together. Set. I watch those, most of them. I watched less of them this time around, but for the previous, I think it's been getting worse, basically progressively worse, uh, because. There's really less and less to say, or it's all been said far too much, or there's a greater proliferation of grifters versus authentic uh, amateur people who just have interesting things to say. So now, as time goes on, we have more and more grifters on the scene, or more and more people who are attempting to create a monetized audience. And that just isn't as interesting as people who, for me personally, who are amateur and are just on the internet because they really have something that they want to say to the world and, you know, they're not thinking about whether somebody's going to be giving them $10 at the end of it. So uh, this is my uh, really only interest in millennial woes. Um, I used to find all his old content where he used to sit there in a dressing gown and smoke. I used to think that was disgusting and I never watched any of it. Uh, Are you... Are you okay with like watching fat people on a live stream? You say fat people? Yeah. Sure. Um, I'm anti. I'm anti-fat, though. I've got to, you know, I've got to be honest. But um, I mean, it doesn't. Yeah, I think people shouldn't be fat. But I'm not like, I'm not like grossed out at it. I'd like to help them. And to what extent do you think that the people who do what we do, you know, produce a lot of live streams, uh, to what extent do you think that comes from a healthy place versus coming from a broken, unhealthy place? 
Oh, I think it certainly comes from the broken side of the aisle. I think you have to have gone through hardship or be in some kind of... I think you have to have uh, gone through adversity to come to these ideas and this uh, this weird niche end of the political aisle. Um, I think you'd agree with that, wouldn't you? Yeah, that, marginalized you... movements attract yes. marginalized people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So we are a movement of broken people. That's kind of an Achilles heel, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can't, you can't build anything good off uh, you know, a movement of broken people. What you can do is destroy. Yeah, we're a bunch of rejects, aren't we? It's but bad. what about like the just the live streaming, producing mm. and, and consuming element? You know, to to what extent does does live streaming forget political ideology of whatever political stripe come from a broken versus a healthy place? Um. So. I'm thinking particularly of the political type probably comes from the broken sense. I mean, there's many functional people who do live streaming. There's many functional people who've turned their hands to video media. Um, in many ways, you know, I asked the question of myself, should I have, should I have just started like a fitness channel? And I, I'm not sure that doing a fitness channel would mean that you're, that would come to a broken place um i think essentially i was attracted to actually start start whatever talking about dissident politics um probably because of those aspects of myself rather than if i'd have been um you know just like a I don't know, fully positive person then i could have done some positive media and that what do you think well i think if it either is neutral or enhances your life it comes from a healthy place if it destroys the quality of your real life and distances you from the people that you were formerly close to then it's destructive sure i'd agree with that i'd agree with that i mean well if i have to give some pushback it's that we don't live in a neutral in a in a fair play playing field uh we're not on a fair playing field some if if like free speech was honored um, and all ideas were acceptable uh, look you know even as i'm about to say that and try to make this case that like i know the dissident right wants me to make and push back i just realized how what like an idealistic stupid world that would be anyway there's no such thing as where a system where there's free speech allowed so i don't even know what point i was trying to make that loop i've railed myself in uh, what what role do books play in your life? Are you much of a book reader? No, not really. Unfortunately, Luke. I, I, I think. Are we approaching the, uh, <laughs> the big question? <laughs> <laughs> I can uh, I can show you what I've uh, the interesting thing I've been reading lately, if you want. Sure. Uh, here it is. Here's. Let's have a look here. Oh, take a look. Quranism, <laughs> a new moral. I didn't know Claire Cole wrote a book. Yeah, so it's very thin. 
but she's recently she's self-published a book finally um did it get a review it, in the times it's five pounds on amazon um but so um i don't know i don't know by the way um if it's going to get any reviews he's definitely wanting me to review it colin liddell says i have to do a review for his website but it's a drag basically it's a drag even though it's very thin have you have you ever been a religious man i'm not religious luke to be honest i feel i feel pretty detached from it i i think that religions are tribes and so i am nominally a christian i am but uh i tend to think it's hocus pocus in terms of religion i'll just be on you know just being upfront about that i wish i was a believer but i don't know there's a there's a uh, podcast called embrace the void which is conducted by a, a left-wing uh, academic whose name i'm blanking on but at the end of every show he does this enlightenment round where he asks people you know a series of questions is this are these the following things real so do you think that do you believe that god is real oh it seems like a uh, like too much of a sim silly question because uh, it demands what is god like the buddhists would say that like the universe is god so i mean what are we talking about a personal god or uh yeah so you live in a nominally christian country so to the extent that people are religious traditionally in great britain they've been christian so uh, a god of the christian conception is that is that a real thing i tend i i tend to think that the bible is uh is man's attempt to put these ideas uh into words that uh makes sense but um i tend to think that you know these are man's interpretations of what seems like a uh, massive cosmic question of where did we come from uh and still really no nobody has a good answer to but an anthropo anthrop anthropomorphized um guy giving commandments or shooting out lightning bolts just seems utterly absurd to me okay so i'd put you if i had to put you into a dichotomy i'd put you down as a, as a no okay what Go about ahead, yeah. justice do you think justice is something that's real that we should be striving towards or is it just entirely subjective um i think justice is um whoa these are difficult questions i don't know the answer to that um i don't know how to answer it um i think it probably the probably subjective uh free will is free will real um yes demons are demons real no uh, afterlife is the afterlife real no 
truth. Is truth real or is it entirely subjective? Truth is real. Beauty is beauty real? Yes. And hope is is hope real or is it just a fantasy? Well, I mean, for the last three here, I could have said you're asking if like um, abstract concepts are real, which um, seems to undermine the the premise. But yes, hope is real. Uh, would you describe yourself as having a strong, medium, or, or weak in-group identity? Um, I would consider myself to have, uh, let's go down the middle, medium. And as your in-group identity has waxed or waned, you notice that it's accompanied by changing perspectives and feelings about out-groups. Uh, yes. Right. The, the stronger one's in-group identity, right? It's almost always inevitably accompanied by increasingly negative feelings about out-groups. Um, I'd say the two, is, the two are definitely associated, but certainly the noticing of differences, uh, whether, whether that's a negative feeling or not, Yeah, you know, you're right. You're right. I'm trying to cook in on, on it. Yeah, sure, you're right. And do you think that we can morally educate people or if we wanted to, like, improve the moral fiber of our society, how would we go about it, do you think? Um, ask me that question again, please. Sorry. How, how could we... How could we improve the, the moral fiber of society? How could we improve the moral character of individuals? I think that's exceptionally difficult unless people, unless kids are brought up correctly. And I think kids need to be brought up. Uh, I think the education system uh, is pretty bad. And... Um, I think it's all about upbringing, Luke. Um, I so have a great answer for you. Go uh, on. Upbringing, do you mean parenting? Um, parenting, but also directing kids into what they would uh, be naturally um, inclined to excel in. Um, but also, I, I just think like uh, schooling should be like 90% physical activity or something like that for until... Kids are like 13, 14, and then like some classes in maths and English or something uh, alongside, um, and then people can, should specialize after that. A bit like the Olympic uh, Olympians used to do, uh, you know, get rather than this kind of mess that we've got into now. So the, the system we have now seems to be much more amenable to females. Like they seem to be much more susceptible to coloring within the lines, following the rules, doing what the, the teacher wants, boys sure. tend to be much more rambunctious. Is that fair? Sure. Um, boys need physical activity, in my opinion. I mean, we have this obesity crisis. We have this crisis of um, incels. 
um, and all this pro- all this problem. These these things seem to be linked. That we are just fundamentally fake. We're, we're just trying to um, socialize kids ready for the workplace, and it's not really working out super well. Yeah, it works out in some ways, and I know it's a difficult task. And I know that uh, public education is mainly just like daycare so parents can work and stuff like that. And the state has to have, you know, has, has to do it somehow. But I know, I just think if we, um, <laughs> in my ideal world, we'd um, like just you know, do uh, competitive sports and like um, athletics for boys and girls up to a certain age and um yeah, and drug test them and keep them thin, and that'll be best. Okay, great, uh, Stephen. It's great to talk to you. Any any final thoughts, questions, comments? No, Luke, thank you for having me on. Uh, should probably done it sooner. Um, and yeah, that's it. I uh, hope I wasn't too boring for no, your audience. No, great. Thanks, mate. Awesome. All right, Luke. Um, Hopefully speak to you again in the future. Okay. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Oh, all okay. right. Adios, everybody. Okay. There's a uh, question in the, in the chat. What do I call mass confusion? Well, I think, I think individuals usually need to believe in a lot of things that are not empirically valid. For example, it's probably adaptive for most of us to think of ourselves most of the time as the center of the universe. So I think both individuals and societies need a certain level of delusion but there's a level of delusion that's adaptive and then there's a level of delusion that's maladaptive. So I wouldn't say that, you know, all delusions are maladaptive. I'd say it is complex. It wasn't a question. It was a joke. Okay. I took it uh, seriously. That's the, that's the thing. When you're doing a live stream, so much of my cognitive processing power is occupied by say, monitoring audio levels, <laughs> audio quality above and beyond everything else. Then thinking about what I want to say next, questions I want to ask, how you know things are going on with a guest, what the audience is saying, and there are so many things competing for my cognitive power that there's not a lot of room left for you know understanding when people are being ironic. It's like when I start a stream, I got like I feel like I got this wide open mind. I feel like there's this you know vast sunny wheat field in front of me that uh, soon there will be plenty. I will press start stream and there will be plenty. Then as soon as I press start stream, I start monitoring audio levels, audio quality. You know, is the stream transmitting? What's the audience uh, saying in the chat? You know, a guest lined up. And then that, that plenty just shrinks down, 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 down and gets smaller and smaller. And I get tighter and tighter and uh, tighter. So let me let me get back to the titular topic of uh, today's stream you know what the hell's going on with uh, trump's indictment this is mickey cow speaking with robert wright friday night oh these are america's bravest national secrets yeah but you know none of them leaked out and you know you know he wasn't well we don't know that they weren't shared with anybody and and he kind of apparently kind of show one to the biographer of uh, what's his name well we don't know wait of course the big question is why does mark meadows have a biographer who's publishing this book that is a big question yes okay anyway go go ahead now maybe now they are maybe he'll cancel it and and get the publicity. Um, the, uh, so uh, he waved around a piece of paper. I don't think anybody's seen the piece of paper. It's not even clear that the piece of paper wasn't just a piece of paper with some writing on it that Trump said was the war plan for something, you know, that no for, invading, for, for bombing Iran. Right. Um, uh, Peggy Noonan wrote a good column 
making the best case for uh, for worrying about this. That you know, Mar-a-Lago was was not at all secure, and people wandered in and out, as far as I can see. Uh, and if you were really a, a semi-competent spy, you could have, you know, maybe uh, come up with our war plan for attacking uh, Iran. So uh, it's still we don't know that it happened. There 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 are a bunch of cases precedents for violating uh, secrecy laws. One of them is uh, General Petraeus, who had a black book where he kept a lot of secrets, clearly national defense information, code names for spies who would be killed. The code name got out, uh, and he lied about it. So, you know, he told people he didn't have it. And uh, Well, this was so after it, his affair with his biographer was so this is This is before the affair. Revealed. And then he, 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 when he left the CIA, he said he didn't take any information with oh. him. He still had these books. And he, he so that's the equivalent of Trump obstructing justice, lying about it. And he also actually did share them with his mistress. Was this uh, woman who was writing a book, or all or something? He was trying to, yeah. He was, trying called, to was a book called All In? I don't know. Everything is called All In. Yeah. Everything is called I mean, Wet They Beach. should do. They should have her on the podcast. Okay. Um. Anyway, so he, he it pretty much parallels Trump, except he wasn't president, and it's worse because he actually gave it to somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, and he settled for a misdemeanor. Okay. He settled the case. They, he pled mm -hmm. guilty to a misdemeanor. That's that's what he got. Uh, similarly, John Deutsch, who was a high Defense Department official to Clinton, and, and I think he was head of the CIA also, uh, uh, had had uh, classified a bunch of classical classified material on his home computer, unsecured, mm -hmm. uh, totally putting uh, it at risk, uh, uh, probably similar to Mar-a-Lago. And um, he uh, he was about to plead to a misdemeanor uh, when Clinton pardoned him, okay? Yeah. So that just shows that, yes, these things have to be illegal. It, it, it's definitely a threat when you, when you, you know, keep top secrets in, in insecure places, but it's not that big a deal. We pardon people. We ought to plead to a misdemeanor. It's not like yeah. a big felony production all the time. So yeah. my line, my line is now, you know, Trump should just settle this for a misdemeanor plea and uh, well, you, you know, know what that. almost seems like a bigger deal uh, is the links he went to to mislead the government. Once he once it was clear the government wants him back, the links he went to to deceive the government and hang on to them. And in, Andy McCarthy said something interesting, you know, of National Review, and he's of course a former prosecutor. He said, you know, really the politically optimal thing to do for the prosecutor to do in this case, and the fact that he didn't do it is evidence that this isn't fundamentally a political prosecution. He said the political optimal politically optimal thing would be. Just stick with the obstruction of justice thing, or at a minimum, make that the front and center of the indictment. Either, either just confine it to that part or make it central, because the reason that would be politically better is because nobody can make a comparison with, with that and what Biden did, right? Have possession of the documents is a case where they can compare it to what Biden did. But nobody can say Biden obstructed justice the way Trump did, the flagrant way Trump did. Uh, and that, I would think, separates this case from maybe all the ones you just mentioned, the obstruction of justice part. Well, no, because the case lied on this one. Could, well, but could, that wasn't in the course that that of a government a... investigation. That wasn't in the course of a, is that obstruction of justice? I don't know. If it's in anticipation of an investigation yeah. that hasn't happened yet, I don't know. Well, it wasn't um, even, uh, yeah, I mean, anticipation would be to put it strongly. It's just a form you fill out. I mean, yeah. the, I guess that's right. The, the problem I have with that is that the public sees their fights over subpoenaed information all the time between, you know, Congress, which is, a, you know, in the Constitution and the White House. And, and there, people are always fighting, Cong you know, not giving Congress what it wants, and they negotiate it out. Uh, in this case, you know, denying something to the National Archives is not that a big a deal. Denying something to a grand jury is a bigger deal. But I just, I, I think you got to make the argument that, that Peggy Noonan makes that these were important documents and they really put national security mm -hmm. at risk. And I don't know what I think about that, but well, uh, I think it's, I think it's a heavy misdemeanor or a life felony. Um, well, as you know, let me let me say, I don't think they should have indicted him. Uh, one of our commenters, J A R I, who claims to be a European and judging by the name is one, says. Okay, this I don't get as a European. Why is Bob saying this Trump indictment is banana republic? If someone has committed a crime or felony, why wouldn't they be charged for it? This is if Bob is attributing strategy to the Justice Department. Uh, I don't know about the rest. Of it. The, 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 the problem is the appearance of strategy. The problem is that this looks like it could be a political prosecution, and that's just it's unhealthy for the country. So I think there should be a generally high bar uh, from prosecuting people who are like on the verge of running for president or just ran for president. Not to say you should never do it. 
He's still there. He's running. A high bar. Yeah, I know. I think there should yeah. be a high bar. And uh, especially in the current political environment where, you know, you've got uh, more than half of the Republican Party uh, convinced that uh, he's being vis- – he and they, in a sense, are being viciously persecuted uh, by nefarious elites who deserve to die, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it totally reinforces his message. I agree with that. Uh, makes it harder to move on. All those points I think are true. What I don't understand is, you know, they're probably not going to get this tried before the election, unless they do it like a month before the election, okay? So what's the point? I mean, this thing is now going to go dormant for a while. It's going to, you know, there'll be sto- drip drab of stories about you know, the scope of this and, uh, you know, postponing this and not postponing this. And uh, he's not actually going to be tried and convicted and branded a felon or, uh, you know, criminal before the election. So what's the point? It's just another bit of bad publicity. If all you care about is not letting him win the election, uh, it, 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 it's of less significance than one would have thought. Uh, so this is the best commentary I've heard on the latest Trump indictment. It's also the only commentary that I have listened to on the Trump indictment. I'm just unable to summon much interest in the Trump indictment. So, of course, I do a titular stream on the Trump indictment. Half Galician says, Luke Ford, did your consumption of right-wing content lead to your prior belief of supplements before I did Teshuva. Okay, so I've had health problems all my life and accompanying my health problems has been this belief that there's one easy fix out there. If I just take the right supplement, my problems will go away. It's a tremendously appealing, compelling belief. I'd often voice something like it with my psychological problems as well. I'd often say to my Therapist, oh God, I wish there was just like one easy fix that I could do to become, you know, much more psychologically competent. And my therapist would encourage me to do, you know, the deeper, more, more painful work. Well, turned out there was one easy supplement that I needed to take, and but all my health problems went away once I started taking grass-fed beef organ capsules. All my health problems went away. So two years ago, I regained my life. Like I was hobbled by what many doctors call chronic fatigue syndrome from age 21 until age 55. And prior to 21, I also often had debilitating problems with fatigue and illness. All my health problems went away just taking this one supplement. So I've had this, this belief in that there's a supplement out there for me, you know, virtually my entire life. Cause I knew something was broken in me. Something wasn't working in me. My life wasn't engaged. It wasn't on track. There was just something I was missing and I also believed that, that that something was out there and I just had to get a big enough audience, reach enough people, connect with enough people, and someone would come along and suggest. And so luckily I developed this great relationship with Amazon. And then I think one day Amazon suggested to me grass-fed beef organ capsules within two weeks. All my chronic fatigue problems went away. I mean, I got my life back two years ago. It was such a dramatic you know, life and death change in the level of my vitality. And so basically I started taking grass-fed beef organ capsules and I also take cranberry extract so that uh, I I don't know how to talk about the benefits of cranberry extract in in a classy 19th century Victorian gentleman manner, which is exactly what I'm known for. So I'll just leave it there. So those are basically the only supplements I, I take anymore. I knew there was something wrong. There was something wrong. But... That's also why I was holding out for a hero. That's also why I was like particularly vulnerable to a guru such as Dennis Prager, why I'm vulnerable to cults, why you know I did this dramatic religious conversion that there was you know a, a loathing inside me for who I was and a desire to transform myself, to leave behind this unwanted self and to remake myself 
in the image of a guru or a, a new community that there was just someone out there who could fix me. And I think thousands of people have felt the same way about Dennis Prager or Reverend Sun Young Moon or, I don't know, maybe Eric Weinstein for some people or, or Jordan Peterson, that uh, a lot of people feel broken. And then there's this guru uh, type figure who comes along and they, they feel happier when they, they listen to him. Like a lot of people, you know, experience depression. Then they listen to Jordan Peterson. They clean their room. They followed some of his basic life advice and it seemed to dramatically improve the quality of their life. And so they developed this uh, intense relationship with Jordan Peterson. So I would say my yearning for a supplement solution, my yearning for one easy fix for my psychological problems uh, comes from the same you know, broken place, yearning for, yearning for a cult, yearning for one easy fix, all right, yearning for the easy way out that has characterized my life. All right, a little bit more here from Robert Wright talking with Mickey Cowles. Of course, Bob. That was a couple of episodes ago. Where does he find a, uh, uh, my free, my Buddhism course, the Coursera course, you, you receive and reply includes the URL of the course. I, um, there are a couple of things I forgot to say about the whole concatenation of uh, Trump indictment and Biden scandals. Mm-hmm. One is one is that this Petraeus uh, prosecution, which ended in a misdemeanor plea, uh, is how Obama knocked Petraeus out of the race. He was a potential rival. So it just I think we underestimate yeah. underestimate the extent to which uh, people who are president like to eliminate their rivals by charging them with uh, failing to handle classified information correctly. There's that precedent. The second thing is the uh, the, the Biden uh, sort of the scandal that the right is saying that this whole thing is designed to ignore. Uh, I thought I was overplaying it because I thought, well, what what does the what do the Republicans have that's any different from the dossier? You know, the dossier was about the second information that said maybe Trump pissed on had some prostitutes pissed on a bed that Obama had slept in. Maybe Trump was you know promised money if he'd sell out, uh, you know, sell out Ukraine to the Russians or sell out various things to the Russians. But it was all just just gossip gleaned from like what people were speculating about. Well, this is a little better than that. This is allegedly they have a confidential source with a track record who has talked to the head of Burisma, who boasted that he'd given five million dollars to bribe the Bidens. Now, uh, and I think I think it's somebody who talked to that source, or it is the source directly. So Wait, who's sure reporting? Who's reporting that this source says this? Well, this is in an FBI form that the Republicans okay. have been trying to get that the FBI won't won't release, but it has let them view. And it's a, a, it, 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 so there there are a bunch of ways there it could be bullshit. It could be the yeah. head of Burisma was bullshitting the source. It could be the source is bullshitting the bullshit. FBI, or it yeah. could be the guy who claims to have talked to the source is bullshitting the FBI. So it could all be bullshit, but um, it's it's a little better than the six degrees of separation of the dossier, and. Uh, They've now come up with a quid pro quo. They've now come up with a quo. Apparently, uh, they claim that Biden did push for some uh, some oil and gas deal that benefited Burisma after he'd gotten rid of this prosecutor who wasn't really going after them. But put that aside, after he got the five million, he did do something that they like. So uh, the makings of a genuine scandal are there. I'm not saying it's a scandal yet, but Biden reacting testily anytime anybody mentions it is a not an indication of confidence. You know, I'm almost surprised, given the amount of concern, which I personally think is legitimate, about uh, – Biden's viability as a general election committee. I'm almost surprised that there hasn't been more made of the Burisma stuff, you know, by people other than uh, Republicans who hate Biden, you know? Well, well like I say, I, I mean, nobody this, wants to do it publicly, I guess, is the problem. But a lot of people summer, want to get out. This summer, they will do it publicly. That's What kind of people will start doing it publicly? That, yeah. And, and the other thing is, of course, it, it casts the impeachment in a in a different light. If there really was something there that Trump was trying to bully Zelensky into investigating, it makes the impeachment look even stupider than it was. So the Democrats have a lot invested in, in Biden being innocent of the Burisma thing. Um. Yeah, in, in retrospect, that that uh, impeachment really paved the way for uh, not just the Ukraine intervention, but possibly the war in the sense that you know it accelerated the flow of weapons to Ukraine. And I don't think it's completely crazy to think that that was uh, 
one of the triggering mechanisms. That, that, that's one thing that freaked uh, that was, Putin out. It was all of a piece. It was all the interagency consensus wanted this to happen. And, you know, how dare Trump violate the inter interagency consensus? Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, so who do you think, what kinds of people do you think will? That's a great point. The Trump impeachment, uh, the outrage at Trump for violating the blob, the foreign policy establishment's perspective on we have to arm Ukraine is what led, you know, is what put us in the position for the Ukraine war. We'll start speaking out this summer. And I, I'm not someone who thinks that the personality of the presidency really makes that huge of a difference. But I do believe that if Trump had won in 2020, we would not have the Ukraine war. And the Ukraine war, of course, has raised the possibility of a catastrophic nuclear exchange above trivial levels, right? The Ukraine war is an unforced disaster, probably 10 times worse than the invasion of Iraq in 2003. It's a monumental disaster, and it would not have happened if Trump had been reelected. So the, the personality of the leader does count for something. Usually the structure counts for the most, but occasionally the personality has some role. I, or do you just think like, like organs like the New York Times will start I mean, publishing I think, a little I think more back stuff? To the, I think back to the Edwards scandal. The people who leaked onto John Edwards was having an affair with this woman, Real Hunter, were not Republicans. They weren't people on the right. They were all Democrats mm -hmm. who were worried that Edwards was going to get the nomination and then the scandal was going to come out and he was going to lose. So you have to knock him out now before he got the nomination. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's those same sort of people are going to make the same calculation about Biden, especially if they think the scandal is real and they're going to come forward. So any reporter who's worth his salt, and a lot of them with the Edwards scandal were not, uh, would take them up on this. Uh, I would think that, you know, the Wall Street Journal has a bunch of reporters who have already chased under the uh, under the being squelched by the editors at the top. So I think there are a bunch of real reporters at the Wall Street Journal that will do it. And mm -hmm. there are also, you know, there are dozens of excellent reporters who don't have jobs anymore because they've been laid off. You know, they got they got nothing better to do than to take up this bait. So, yeah, uh, but, I mean, how far can Substack get you with something like this? Well, Seymour Hirsch managed to start off the the uh, pipeline story. Uh, I guess it's gotten well, out of his control, but he did that from a yeah, it's, it's not looking so great for his thesis, but. Um, I mean, and now that's looking more and more like the Ukrainians did it. But um, yeah, well, yeah, no, you're right. If you're Seymour Hirsch and, you know, you got a big, uh, a, a very vocal and sizable constituency on your side, it can happen. So, yeah, it's not crazy. Um, uh, wait, tell me, when is the last date you think like some major uh, Democrat could declare that they're in the race and it could matter? I mean, so the first primary is what? Like, when is it? When is the Iowa caucus? December or January? End of January. I think. Or sometime in January. Sorry, the New Hampshire is like. I mean, I Either guess the beginning of the February or the end of January. I do but think you, you could it, look it up. in a situation like this, we got so many doubts about the leading candidate. I can imagine a candidate catching fire pretty fast. Well, Bobby Kennedy didn't declare against Lyndon Johnson until after the New Hampshire primary, obviously. Uh, uh, things have changed, and, though, right? And he got uh, traction pretty fast. Um, yeah, you think they could be, you think it'd be easier to wait till the last minute now because everything mm -hmm. moves faster. So uh, I would say you don't have to do it. You know, it, it's, it would be possible to do it after the New Hampshire primary if Biden does badly. That's that's still my template. Okay, oh, I wrote something I, I in the can... 80s about that, Bob. Yeah, but yeah, but you, you need a lot more money these days. I mean. Supposedly, I guess who knows? Free media and potential in, in principle, you can, you can have free media for a lot. I guess I think money is overrated. Organization is but not overrated. But uh, I think you, you can, you know, you have, can have a party and a laptop. You can organize pretty quickly. I, I want, I want. Look to at have Gary Hart. He, Gary Hart caught fire because he finished third in Iowa. All of a sudden, people said, "Okay, he's the guy." But go ahead, sorry. No, I really want a viable alternative to Biden uh, by end of summer. You know, Bobby Kennedy's so far doing better than I thought. I don't know how many people in that twenty percent who support him. In fact, you heard him talk, or how big a liability the voice will be. You do get used to it. I was just very disappointed that he hadn't moved on, at least in terms of what he says publicly, from Kennedy as a, he, he didn't seem to be, you know, he didn't seem to be living in the modern era. He's li reliving the Bobby Kennedy campaign of 1968. 
Uh, and he, you know, he is very thanks for, for a great speech, but it's not what people are looking for. No, he can. He 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 is. Uh, he focuses on the Kennedy past to to a considerable extent. I mean, he can go on and on about how his uncle JFK would have, in fact, pulled us out of Vietnam. And he claimed that he claimed that uh, Joe Rogan that his uncle had the JFK had signed a document pulling us out of Vietnam. Right? Did we know that? Days, I, I never heard of that before. You would I mean, think Char facts like that he'd have right. I mean, Charlie Peters at the Washington Monthly always used to say that Kennedy had confided in people that he was going to pull out of Vietnam, but not that he actually signed a document saying it. Mm. No, so I'm, 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 I'm very, I was very surprised when he said that. I don't know what was he was. Was he saying he was going to pull out after the '64 election? Was that it? No, I think it was pull out then. I don't think it was. Well, I he was less. He yeah. So Bobby Kennedy Jr. strikes me as as reckless, as very much a mixed bag, but uh, someone who's probably momentarily compelling. It's hard to think of him being a serious presidential candidate. Right. Uh, Robert Wright, Mickey Kaus also talked on Friday night about uh, has Tucker Carlson undergone a psychotic break because Tucker has, has increasingly over the past year or two said things that are absolutely absurd. Tucker's jumped on the, the UFO bandwagon. Here's Mickey. America, your roads suck. There are Jersey barriers everywhere. He's right about that. There Talking are Jersey Canada. barriers everywhere and nobody seems to feel any Tucker. urge or imperative to take them down. So plus Jersey barriers are the issue. Tucker wins, but, uh, it's very similar, but it's this crude money thing. And the problem, the you know, problems of America aren't going to be solved. So we have the 113 billion we're spending on Ukraine spent on what Tucker wants it spent. The problems are deep and cultural and they do not involve money. They involve the family. They involve society being pulled apart. Uh, and, uh, uh, and Tucker knows that. Okay. He's smart enough to know he is dumbing himself down. Okay. Robert Kennedy, I think is not smart enough to know he's, but he's, he says the same pitch with the money and it's all economistic. He's not smart enough to know that that doesn't work. I think that's the difference between. Well, in other words, he does not agree with you on certain parts of ideology. That's what you mean by not smart enough is he doesn't agree with Mickey. Correct. Okay. I just want to be clear. That would be Mickey's definition of smart. Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, on, so you finally watched the first episode of Tucker Kennedy, the point is Kennedy's a true believer and I don't think Tucker is. Well, yeah, I'm not sure how true a believer he is. I've always been suspicious of that on foreign, on foreign policy. Well, but uh, the um, but but so you, you watch the first me? episode. You finally watch the first episode of the Tucker thing. You agree it was a little. Oh, what's the first? Where's the first three episodes, Bob? There's okay, a fourth well, one now. There's a fourth one now that I haven't seen. But there's three. You're ahead of me. You're ahead of me. But back to the first one. Didn't he seem a little unhinged? I mean, we we revisited the him begging to be called an anti-Semite part last week. Uh, and uh, he, he really he was, said, he was begging for it. I don't know. He said that Zelensky was friends with BlackRock. Is that necessarily anti-Semitic? I mean. I thought it was the part where he called him rat-like, sweaty, shifty, but he a makes persecutor of, of he Christians. Makes, he makes, I think you put makes, it all together. It's only a 10-minute <laughs> show, Mickey. When you pack all that into a 10-minute show, come on. I guess break. He's, he's smart enough to know the resonance between all those things. I think but, so. Uh, but, um. Uh, you know, he makes fun of Lindsey Graham's looks, too. I mean, he's a luxus. You know, what can I say? Um, but actually, the main thing you said, the most important part was what you said before that. He's smart enough to know. No, but it, look, at, at least he didn't spend all his time on that. There was the part where he said, we know, we now know 
that the government is concealing the cadavers of space aliens. Well, it's he very interesting. I had, I had read an article that didn't mention the, that it had this whistleblower who seemed very credible, say we've recovered uh -huh. vessels of the aliens, but he didn't mention cadavers. And do you think they would, and that's because this guy, this whistleblower mentioned the cadavers in a later interview mm -hmm. uh, with, with some website. Um, and then you, uh, so, so our, our, my, uh, my follower, little, little, hey, little Mickey, uh, was right in, in in pointing this out to us. Uh, that so that, that and that does detract from the guy's credibility. I mean, not only you know because it's it, it sort of it's it's inherently less uh, rational for the aliens to send uh, actual aliens as opposed to you know probes, right? So it's just if yes. you believe if you believe. <laughs> Anal probes. If you right? If, if right, we don't expect the anal probe. So um, the uh, no, it's MBAI, right? It's like it would be Chat GPT. If he said they were con concealing the cadavers of GPT, that would be one thing because that presumably it would be AI. We now know that when, before a civilization gets to a point where it can send spacecraft off to other solar systems, the AI is already running the show, right? So anyway, I, 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 do, do we know that? I mean, no, I'm kind of I'm half kidding, but not entirely. Anyway, here's a crazy here's a crazy idea. What if okay. the aliens, in fact, are two tier have a two tiered race system? They're the real aliens who are like super. So I, I used to loathe Robert Wright, and I don't like how he interrupts all the time. I don't like many of his mannerisms. I have developed a strange new respect for for Robert Wright. And uh, open question: If aliens came to Earth, would you have sex with an alien? Like just something to tell your mates about? If they said, "Hey, what's what's going on? What's new?" You could say, "Oh, yeah, I had." No, full-on sex with an alien last night. They're smart and big yeah. and blobby, and they don't travel, but they have a race of servants who are sort of miniature right. who they put in the craft. Kind of like, or what still, if they're just avatars? They're just make, deep fakes of the actual still, alien. Still makes no sense because the AI presumably would run the spaceships just as well as the actual aliens that are there. Uh, to, to say with certitude something that he's not certain about. Uh, yeah, but this is this is kind of really going out on a limb. We're talking alien cadavers here. I, I, so what? I, I think it's a trivial side show. <laughs> this, this is not like uh, saying Russia blew up the dam. I, I, <laughs> this I, is this is which has about an equal probability of being true, I would say. But this well, is what, what, we'll what we're saying. Russia blew up the dam is much more relevant to today's politics and UFOs. You, except for this, you sent me to this crazy guy Troy, uh, who has a long series about how there's a, a an interlocking conspiracy of all these theories uh, with uh, with theosophists and. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, UFO people and, and people who believe that there's a ascended elite that knows all these things and all these all these conspiracy conspiracy sort of all part. They all buy into the, all the conspiracies and they're all part of an interlocking web. And the result is a threat to democracy. That's the part that I don't no, get. I don't think look, that guy is much more paranoid than any of the paranoids he's writing about. I have a repost. I have a devastating okay. repost. But why don't we save it to the people? Well, no, let's let's have the devastating repost. We're on the top. Okay, I just forwarded you an email that had been forwarded to me that had that thread. But, but uh, the, I mean, I didn't like study up on the guy, but I read his thread enough to know what was interesting to me. And he, and he wasn't, and you're overstating it. He wasn't, oh, there's a vast conspiracy. He was saying two things. I mean, the main thing to me was he's a guy who had kept track, and I think this part is reliable, of people who had been on this UFO bandwagon for a long time. Right. And they included the. So everyone who's believing in, in ufos just strikes me really poor epistemics bro like really poor level of evidence it's almost all based upon uh video or pictures that could be have have other explanations 
off banks or someone's you know first-hand experience so i'm very much on the skeptical side with regard to ufos two people who uh two of the three people who wrote the original new york times piece that brought all this stuff back to life years several years right. ago now that piece i think was solid because they also threw helene cooper uh like uh, now it wasn't solid that's absurd like a Pentagon correspondent or something on that case. So she was with, she was part of the byline. Right. And I think the shit was solid. And I'm not saying it wouldn't have been without her, but those, those are, I didn't realize like, like when we first heard about this whistleblower, it's like, uh, and the, and the piece about him is written by two former New York times people. Okay. Well now I, we know they've been on the UFO bandwagon for a long time, which I didn't really realize that was what was interesting to me. And that's my, that's, that was the only reason I forwarded that thread. Then the oh, guy did go on to say, no, he did go on to say it is a trope in various kinds of anti-government rhetoric. I forget if he said on the right or left or both that, you know, they're concealing shit from us and the UFO thing. Uh, stuff works. Yeah, just because New York Times reporters are taking UFOs seriously doesn't make UFOs a serious consideration, right? New York Times reporters are often completely out to lunch. Into that well, and I think he's right about that. Tucker's a perfect example. He's a perfect example. Well, That's what he's appealing to is anti-government if you, paranoia. If you, right. If you believe in one conspiracy, you're more likely to believe in another conspiracy. I agree. If you're an anti-vaxxer, if you believe in UFOs, you're more likely to believe that the vaccines are a, a, a plot by the drug companies. That, I understand that. It's when he says, and therefore they're a grave threat to democracy. So I saw my old friend Josh Randall. I was doing a stream Friday evening with Dennis Dale just before Shabbat. And just before I, I left the stream, Josh Randall stopped by. I haven't you know, had him on any of my streams. He left after I was a, a bit of a jerk to him, what, a year or two years ago? And I, I subsequently privately apologized to, to Josh for, for being a jerk. But, uh, you know, another stalwart of the show who's like washed his hands and, and moved on. It's like, ugh. You know, doesn't doesn't want to be part of the show anymore but it was you know great to have a little bit of interaction with josh randall friday evening and i was saying that uh, you know much of conservatism is based on a con of shilling supplements and josh randall had a great response well what about the left and pharmaceuticals so establishment conservatism and the center and the left are you know largely underwritten by pharmaceutical companies my answer to josh would be that pharmaceuticals are far more regulated than supplements so supplements you can you know you can make far wider claims on a much you know weaker basis of evidence than you can with with pharmaceuticals but certainly many pharmaceuticals have been approved and are being promoted and being prescribed in a ways that are bad for people so it seems to me that uh, right now if i had to weigh things up uh, kind of 50-50, but uh, no, nah, it seems to me that supplements are more of a con game right now in, in America than pharmaceuticals. But I'm very open to being wrong here. That's a, I, I he does say that. He does say that. Read the whole thread. And therefore, they're a great threat to democracy. Yeah, and it, it, and he, so he's, he goes off the deep there. And uh, uh, what, what he doesn't say is, is this whistleblower that's current with... And let's say hello to Elliot Blatt. What's going on, bro? Uh -oh. How's it going, Elliot? Blessings to Elliot Blatt, who can't hear me. I just heard an uh-oh from Elliot. Speak of Tucker talked about, who seems so credible, yet does talk about cadavers. Is he a theosophist who also believes in drug conspiracy? Is he part of this vast network? The theosophy thing is wild. You know, who was, if I understand theosophy, if I'm not mixing it up with something else, it was this guy, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, what is it? There's the Waldorf schools and the other kind Rudolf of Steiner, he was anthroposophy. Yeah. He replaced theosophy with a oh, man-centered man view which was anthroposophy, I believe. Oh, he's, but he's in the theosophy lineage? He's a, yeah, he's a spin-off, yeah, I think. I have yeah, some so friends, the Waldorf I have some friends schools, who are part of that. You know, the, the Waldorf schools give, like, part of their philosophy is that you should give very young children the dolls they play with, like two years old, three-year-old. Hello? Should not...
Elliot Blatt, what's going on, bro? Oh, all right. I couldn't hear you last time, Luke. Uh, sorry. I don't know if it was on my end of your end. Sorry. Blessings. Um, uh, blessings. Early blessings. Yeah, this is uh, started early. Uh, great opportunity. I woke up to, just to see Stephen leaving. So, um, my bad. Had a nice restful sleep. Oh, lucky so, you. So, uh, so Luke, I, uh, I uh, had a little journey yesterday. Beautiful. I went to uh, the outskirts. You know, I got outside of the metro bubble you know yeah uh just to see what life was like you know i had a birthday party to go to beautiful and it's aliens bro <laughs> it's weird out there <laughs> um it's a different culture out there man uh we got problems but what do you mean get specific did i lose you again i'm i'm here but Luke, you... i'm not hearing anything okay sorry let me um oh okay. boy wait, 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 uh, it's i think on I my end. hang on hang on um okay speakers all right um, oh oh wait, wait wait um microphone let me see uh ha 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 um hmm this is on this is on my end so microphone uh, that's right and then did you hear that uh, music playing Huh. Speakers, testing, microphone. I don't know why. Okay, I'm coming through. The The audience can hear me. The audience can hear me, but Elliot can't. So I don't know what's, what's going on there. Sorry about that. Uh, try, try to come back, Elliot, if you can. I have faces. They should not have faces. Okay. They have a bunch of weird beliefs. Um, but okay, anyway, well, I, it, it was a weird, it's a weird group to include in this vast conspiracy. Anyway, okay. we were talking about Tucker. Yes. He's, he's a fucking he's, nut. He's, okay, he's we agree. Let's have, talk about you. He seems to have bought the UFO Kool-Aid. Yes. Oh, I don't know if he has. I don't give him that much respect. My, my point is just that when I said it's not like saying the Russians blew up the dam, uh, it's another, that doesn't convince people that you're crazy, right? This convinces people he's crazy, even though I think it's just, uh, reckless opportunism or something. You know, the, 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 this guy we were talking to on Twitter that you mentioned, uh, did say, and he was a Tucker fan. He said, "I thought he, I think he's had a psychotic break after watching the first episode." And and I don't think he has, but but I think it was it was weird enough for non crazy people to say, "Is he having a psychotic break?" You watch the whole thing; it's fucking weird. The weird Zelensky shit. Well, it is. It no, is weird. No, UFO cadavers. That's fucking weird. It is. It's a lot weirder than the stuff he was writing for the Daily Caller. And it wasn't exactly that he was restrained by the editors of the Daily Caller, since he owned and ran the Daily Caller. Uh, <laughs> It, uh, it, nobody was restraining him, and yet his pieces were very respectable and nuanced. And this is all very unsubtle and a little crazier. And you wonder if it, I think he is being cynical about it. But uh, the UFO thing, I think he actually believes because um, the government has been more open about UFOs than it has been before. So there, there's well, a, a they can there be real. A, yeah. There's a trend UFOs there. Yeah. Can be real. Sure. And there's interesting suggestive evidence. Uh, this David Fravor yeah. pilot, he's yeah. interesting. Yeah. But um, what, what it is to me is Tucker. He's sort of been forced by getting fired to uh, carve an alternative to cable news and his latest. Uh, Latest episode, which I didn't see, is all about how cable news is doomed. So presumably he is the wave of the future. And he might also decide the same thing about political parties. You know, we have these two parties. They're doomed. Time for a third alternative. I'm just saying well, there would be a actually, harmonic convergence of his entire worldview if he either supported a third party run for president or mounted one himself. Goes for the alien vote. See, that's what I mean. This is nuts. If you're, if you're, well, it depends. If you just want to pick up 7% and cause a ruckus as an independent and swing the election, sure, go, go alien. Um, the uh... Okay, I think that's uh, enough from that show. How to tell a critic from a troll. This is Andrea with bangs and uh, Chris Cavanaugh and Christian pastor Paul Vanderclay. And, and it is almost certainly the case when I hear 
like any discussion about this topic in um the the kind of uh, I'm not saying that you're a part of this ecosystem, but I tend to refer, you know, the kind of sense making sphere. Um and I a lot of the discussion of religion is around the the ritualistic, the community, the you know, traditional okay, symbolic interpretationism. Uh, but... One more time with Elliot Lott. What's going on, bro? All right. How about now? I can hear okay. you from loud and clear. How about me? I can. Uh, it's nothing but love all the way around, bro. Nope. I spoke too soon. No, we you're can gone. hear you. We can hear you, bro. Oh, I'm gone. I heard you for a split second, then you're gone, Luke. Uh, Give your story, bro. Uh, Earth to Luke. Earth to Luke. Come Give and your Luke. story. Give, uh, give your story, uh, bro. Yeah. Uh, I'll hang on for a few more seconds here. No, just you were there and then you were gone. So I, I don't believe it's on my end. Okay. All right. Ten, nine, eight. I grew seven, up an Irish Catholic. Six, I'm very familiar five, with those positive four, aspects of religion. Three, I'm also very two, familiar All right, with next time potential we'll have to, we'll have to negative impacts right, of religious institutions and communities and their ability to suppress, oppress and to damage people. And and in many occasions, it's it's actually the religious institutions and religious people that betrayed, in a in a sense, the belief that people had in those okay. things. And that's not a small aspect, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of I I sometimes feel like there's a kind of unnecessary uh, like barrier drawn between religious and and non-religious, whereas the vast majority of religious and non-religious people I know. Are you know they're getting along in the world. They're they're looking for meaning. They're looking for stuff that they value, but they they recognize that there are good and bad things, and that applies to as much religion as public health measures and and trade offs. And and I'm I'm kind of I react quite strongly to things that I perceive as suggesting that um, if you lack the the religious impulse, that there's something fundamentally missing, or that you know your your life is you're, you're denying in essence that you actually are religious because everybody fundamentally is. And and I see that as like a sort of implicit thing that materialism sucks the life and meaning out of the world and that we want to re-inject the, the spiritual and the metaphysical. But but in that contrast, and this way I would say to the atheist, so you asked Andrea, you know, how I'm, I'm why I'm, uh, I would distinguish myself from the new atheists. And, and part is because I actually study religion words, lots of the new atheists don't. Um, but the, the, the other part is that I, I don't think that inherent conflict has to exist. Like I, I think tolerance and and uh, like a willingness to recognize that people can draw meanings from different, you know, uh, like secular or religious meaning structures is is beneficial. And I'm that's why I'm like I'm quite reactive to things which are are, are presenting a secular world as, as fundamentally like cold and alienating and void of, of meaning because I I don't think I, I think that presents that ends up in the discussion with higher. I think I agree with Chris Cavanaugh here. Meaning primarily comes from relationships. It should primarily come from your family, your extended family, your friends and community. If he is able to be moral uh, without, you know, a, a religious structure to keep them on the straight and narrow. And I think all of those questions have been like discussed and answered in 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 hundreds of years of debates between atheists and religious people. So in in I guess in part, that's a whole bunch of things. But that's that's partly um, my reaction to that, Paul, is that I I think it is you're completely right that we should take seriously the the attachments and, and social ones and, and you know you could frame it in other languages as you suggest like the you know the experience of the numinous the the like esprit de corps or or being touched by the holy spirit or the, the your commitment to the sangha or whatever it might be but um in while acknowledging that 
I'm I'm not sure that I agree that my secular worldview requires like kind of uh, that that's a metaphysical reality that I can't comprehend because I feel like I comprehend it okay and that I understand people that value it. I don't personally believe in the metaphysical aspects of it, but you know that's it doesn't feel that mysterious to me that that exists in human given the kind of social beings that we are. Okay, I, Paul, I want you to take it, but but I, I have a, a little quick something just to to be clear regarding the empty desert scape of secular materialism. Um, yeah. It's not just... So this is Andrea with Bangs. She's religious, I believe. She's a, a Christian. And she, she's one of these lovely female commentators who seems like a, just a lovely, lovely person. But when she speaks, there are just rivers of words that just don't mean anything. So I'll just play a little excerpt. To secular materialism. There's absolutely Christian materialism, like like which I didn't mean to do. What the hell is Christian materialism? Like Christianity is a supernatural religion. Uh, she, she reminds me of Alex Kashuta. Babylon, but did <laughs> when I joined Twitter and talked to a bunch of scientists about science. The Church of Twitter. Meaning there. <laughs> so 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 it's not it's not just it's not just secular. Like it's it's the. Uh, she she talks and she talks, but she says nothing. Sad. Um, I mean. If you, if you add, if you say have a specific, well, what about lived experience regarding the Aboriginal way of like seeing science and like like their lived experiences that back of the turtle or like I don't know, there's a lot of back of the turtle like myths, but but re regardless, okay, th that's not what I'm meaning for lived experience. Like I I take lived experience seriously. Give me examples and, and I'll I'll see how. Okay, you take lived experience seriously in in, in what context? All right, if you're if you're married to someone, you need to take their lived experience seriously. If you have strong friendships, you need to you know, at least treat your, your friend's lived experience with, with some respect. But if you're trying to ascertain truth about the wider world, you know, various individuals' lived experience doesn't mean anything. Oh, seriously, I can't take them depending on what it is in the subject. I think that um, science has given us the ability to... Uh, my son has diabetes and a type 1. Mm. He is 11 and has had it since he was 4. Thank you, science. Thank you, the Canadian guy who can't remember his name, who came up with penicillin. Like, thank you for insulin. thank you for that. Hmm? Insulin. Oh, sorry. Better get this straight, mom. <laughs> are you sure your son has diabetes? I mean, you know what you're talking about. Yeah, I just said the wrong. Just inject him. What's there? My, yeah, I inject him with whatever the pharmacy gives me, and it's the right thing. Okay. Well, that was my lived experience. That was a little bit off for that moment. Um, but no, but like, so I, I, yes, I understand scientific method um, helping us medically like that like such amazing like so many lives are saved because of the scientific method um that's the most front of my brain example like is it true well did, like what, which, which truth are we you know like looking at a story and who's the hero and, and what he well, well okay sorry I, i'm i'm bringing up more things than i, I took too long so paul i just blather please. on and on well you, you had a question about wokeness and, and wokeism oh, yeah, well, that, yeah so I, I was kind of curious just about you know the uh the emphasis yeah so both religious people and the woke right similarly come from claims about their own lived experience and how these claims should be treated as sacred and should not be subject to you know, skeptical criticism this on on you know lived experience and and the kind of reductionist nature of of science and, and secularist worldviews the the other group that i hear apart from religious people uh, who advance that critique often is postmodern uh, kind of uh, scholars, right? Yeah, they, yeah. They, and I, I'm just curious to the extent to which, on that particular point, not you know all the broader stuff that you you agree, or is it like, is there something that's distinctive that uh, from the critique that you 
would have that that divergence from that because you know Jordan Peterson is often critiqued that he sounds remarkably postmodern while reeling against postmodern people. And oh, yeah, there's, say, a, there's a lot of postmodernity in Jordan. It depends what you mean. Right. It depends right. what right. such and such is. Right? right. That's something that's very common. So I'm I'm just curious about in that respect to what extent there's there's overlap on those points or or whether it's it's like you know it's just a parallel evolution and there isn't actually a point of contact. Still not sure what you're asking, but I'll try and answer. Okay. Um, there, there's plenty of postmodernity in me too. I think I think. So, so if you want to sort of see this, see this long term, I see this very much within a religious frame. So, part of why the part of what during the Renaissance you have this this real fascination with sources and literary sources. I mean, Europe, certain parts of Europe start going crazy looking for Greek manuscripts and so on and so forth. Erasmus, of course, um, is is finding you know at this point in Europe, everybody's learning Greek, people are learning Hebrew, and then they're looking at Jerome's Vulgate, and they begin to recognize that hey, wait a minute. Um, I mean, today today a contemporary biblical scholar might accuse uh, Jerome of writing a paraphrase. Because if you look at see, so what I do with my belt Sunday school class, for example, is I put different English texts by next to each other. And I have, I have a sense of the nature of this translation that Jerome is filling in a lot of the space in the, you know, in the just at the late antiquity, filling in a lot of the space so that all of the doctrines are nicely there for the people reading the Vulgate, for the people reading this Latin text. And come the Renaissance, because of all the texts that have sort of been unearthed because of the Crusades, now suddenly people have access to better Greek texts and some Hebrew texts, and they're learning Hebrew from Jews. And so Erasmus takes it, and now the printing press is there. So Erasmus is, you know, lining up the Vulgate and some, you know, some Greek text and having notes on the side, basically critiquing Jerome and saying, you know, hey, wait a minute, um, what, what's, Jerome is doing something funny with the text. And of course, as Erasmus is writing, Luther is reading. And a lot of people have accused Erasmus of laying the egg that Luther hatches. So Luther, of course, is reading this and he's following with Erasmus. Erasmus winds up staying a faithful Catholic. Luther, of course, um, he's got his own things going on in northern Germany, sort of following Jan Hus and starts making some noise, wanting a little bit of a discussion. And if the Catholic Church is reactive, they kick back. Luther's, Luther's kind of like Jordan Peterson. Is that if you push him, you know, he gets reactive fast. And so Luther keeps amping up. Luther's prince doesn't want him um, getting burned at the stake like Jan Hus. So he protects him. But Luther very much believed that, you know, if we could get that, you really have sort of the sources of science in this way, in a religious sense, that if we can get the best text, and if we can apply reason to it, then everybody will see the world in the same way. This is Luther's big idea. And to Luther's dismay, it doesn't happen that way. You know, Karlstad, um, Zwingli, the Anabaptist, I mean, all hell breaks Luther in Northern Europe, and nobody quite knows what to do. But the printing press is there, the genie's out of the bottle. By the way, the generation before the New World was discovered. So suddenly everybody wants to figure out, well, how can we all get on the same page again? And so the idea, really, because they've sort of been infused with a lot of classics, Aristotle's been found, suddenly it's, well, let's see, empiricism and reason, you know, these two ideas. What we can see down below here, you know, I see a cat, you see a cat, we all see a cat, we all call it a cat, that's a cat. So, and then reason, and so and basically at the beginning of modernity, where we're all trying to be on the same page with, with you know, with, with the stuff that we find. Here, I've got a can of Wilhelmina mints given to me by a very strange Jew. Um, <laughs> And so, and, and that's hopefully the way we can kind of all be on the same page, all be in the same world. And Galileo, of course, is measuring things, and we're all trying to get in the same world. And, and that holds for a good long time, that we can, maybe with these things, we can all stay on the same page. And of course, religion continues to adapt, and religion becomes a very modernist thing. And well, we have the text, and the text is going to be sort of the thing we can all agree on, for the most part. We'll argue about interpretations, but, and, and of course, the religious institutions continue to, to bear weight, but, you know, go up and down during the modern period. Well, of course, in postmodernity, people sort of get to the end. Modernity really sort of reaches its peak at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And, and people begin to realize that, yeah, we all sort of have access to the same, the same reason and empiricism, more or less. But people are sure jigging them in other ways that are pretty significant for the way these civilizations are founded. And so now you, now you begin to get this critique, this narrative critique, and say, well, people are he's okay, so evangelical that somehow managed to stay in Toronto. And I started listening to it. It's like, uh, he's no evangelical. And OK, well, he's a union. So. So he's talking here, a Christian pastor, Paul Vanderclay. 
talking about his experience with Jordan Peterson. Well, that's strange to begin with. I didn't know much about Jung. So then I made a video about him. And then I start getting these emails from people. Oh, this is strange. So I start talking to people. I'm a pastor. So I talk to them about their life. And many of the conversations are in private. And so they're very transparent. And they got nothing to lose. You know, they don't know me anything. I don't know them. And I begin talking to dozens, even hundreds of these people. And I discover that the vast majority of these people, number one, were men. We'll give Jordan Peterson's audience. That's not a surprise. But the really strange thing about him was that many of them were depressed. And many of them basically told me, by listening to Jordan's biblical series, the depression lifted. And, and I'm not talking about someone who's just feeling a little blue. I'm talking about people that, I mean, medically, when I listened to what they were describing, they definitely would have been diagnosed with depression. All of the things that they're doing. And, they, and they're basically telling me, I listened to enough Jordan Peterson, and you know what? I cleaned my darn room. And I began to bathe. <laughs> I began to eat better. I began to exercise. I began to prioritize getting out of my room. And then I started doing these meetups. And so then they start coming, at least the local ones would start coming to my church. And now we're starting to have, you know, in-person conversations. Now, this is an extremely strange thing that watching those videos would have the effect on people. And it's, a, it's an obvious effect, because I, I can see it, that their lives are improving. On all and I had the same sort of experience with Dennis Prager as my, you know, virtual father, virtual friend, having a, a parasocial relationship with this radio talk show host. Like it felt like a lifeline during a dark period of my life. Sorts of scales that, that I can value and, and secular people could value it. And that led me to the question, what on earth is going on? And, and that led me, of course, to Peugeot was a friend of his. Peugeot was another religious guy. So we were talking about that stuff. And then Verveke and the meaning crisis, because, well, what words to, what words to describe to these guys? And when I talked to these guys, I mean, one guy, I remember he had been religious, you know, the, the, the Sam Harris stuff, the new atheist stuff just sort of blew apart his worldview. And then he. He gets together with a woman and she gets pregnant and, eh, you know, better marry her maybe. So he gets married to her. And then one day, and then, they, you know, they have this kid and there's two, there's two year old running around. And he says to himself, now, if I listen to Sam Harris, what, what, why do I love this two year old so much? Now, he was a smart guy. Most of the people I deal with are smart people. They've, they've got college degrees. A lot of them work in tech. He said, it's more than just I'm biologically predisposed to care for my offspring. Yeah, I get that. But I just have a sense there's something more. And I think it's right in that space. That as a pastor, I listen to this and I say, well, this is interesting. How does this connect to my two worlds? And, and for me, that's what, this has, that's what this journey has been on. Because part of me knew that after a while, now some of them are going to sort of get lift off because they've improved some things in their body and they're not going to be as depressed. They're eating better. They're having better relationships. They're, they've got a schedule. They're sleeping better, et cetera, et cetera. So physiologically, you could say, yeah, they've, they've gotten lift off. They're doing well. But for a lot of them, I knew that Jordan Peterson was on the status rocket and we're going to be talking about social wars stuff and all this. So if your life isn't working you know, obviously, you need to do something different, right? If you fail doing the same thing again and again and again, right, it's probably a good idea to try something different, you know, even follow some advice from an online guru. But are the changes permanent? Are the changes permanently positive? All right, do you get connected to good people? Do you get reconnected to reality? And for me as a pastor, I said, they probably need a community of people who can be around them to give them some support. Now, some of them have not. Yeah, I, I think most people definitely need community. If you don't have family, you got to have community. It's not good for men to be alone. Gone religious. Some of them have gone Orthodox. Some of them have gone back to Catholic Church. Some of them, I'm one guy in my meetup returned to his Sikh roots. So it's been very complex. But for me, I don't, I'm not skeptical about post-modernity. I think it is sort of an end stage of modernity. And I think a lot of the science has driven us to the fact that the world is a lot more complicated than John Locke could have imagined. And especially when we're dealing with it socially. So postmodern simply means that 
no one narrative is sufficient to explain life. And so some people, they get their life turned around by narratives spun by Tony Robbins or Dennis Prager or Jordan Peterson, and it helps for a while. But usually, unless you get connected to real people and create a real family or real community, right, these positive changes don't last. You, you had other kinds of transformation. And I'm in the business of transformation, as is John Verbeke. And in some ways, um, you know, my relationship with John Verbeke and the transformations he's seeing and the tools, that's a very complex relationship I have with John, even with Jonathan Peugeot to a degree, because a lot of people are joining the Orthodox Church. Um, I really celebrate when people join the Orthodox Church because, hey, they're part of the Christian family. Do I have ideas about Orthodoxy? Sure. But, you know, we'll let that we'll let that go for now. <laughs> but this but I'm absolutely down with you in terms of I see people leave Christianity, leave the church, leave their wives, leave their families, leave their husbands. I see people transforming all over the place. So the other guest here, aside from the pastor, is Chris Kavanaugh, who is one of the two academics behind the podcast Decoding the Gurus. Lately. That's, I think we're in a phase right now where a lot of people are transforming. A lot of people, they're discovering this, they're discovering that, they're going to Tony Robbins, and immediately one of the first things that they say is, this is an upgrade. Boy, I'll tell you, ever since I left Christianity, not afraid of demons, I don't worry about hell, I have my Sunday mornings back, um, I no longer have sort of a domineering sexual ethic I have to satisfy, I don't have to worry about Jesus talking about lust of the flesh or lust of my eyes. I mean, boy, talk about liberation, this is surely an upgrade. And hey, I... Yeah, so on an empirical basis, definitely seems like some people's lives demonstrably benefit, at least for a time, from leaving Christianity, leaving Judaism, leaving Islam. And then, particularly if people get married and have a family, they often start coming back to organized religion and traditional ways of organizing community. I totally get that. I can feel the pressure of Christian discipleship on me. But I see these momentary transformations as fairly small things. And what's different from, let's say, a pastor from so I'm sure for many people having an adulterous fair, you know, it seems like a positive transformation of their life. They have excitement and joy and pleasure and happiness and, and dreams, and they feel like they're really living. And I'm sure, you know, the initial stages of an adulterous fair are absolutely rapturous, but is it a sustainable happiness that comes from it? From, let's say, a therapist. As therapists look at these people in a little small box and well-being is sort of their gauge. And, you know, and so a therapist might tell you, leave that sack of dirt you're married to and get out there and have a better life. Okay. As a pastor, I'm seeing people in the wild and I'm seeing people for long periods of time. And I'm seeing them in connection with their spouse and their kids and their parents and their jobs. And so for me, these heuristics are very interesting because when you walk with people over decades, you begin to, you begin to have wonderings about the, you begin to evaluate these transformations and you say, now, yeah, you don't, you're not under the Christian sexual ethic anymore. You got your Sunday mornings back. You no longer, have, no longer have the kind of death anxiety you had before. But these other death anxieties come in because now suddenly you have to get all of the good stuff between zero and 80. And that's it. And then you begin to notice that, well, now there's a certain amount of YOLO. You only live once. Boy, you know, if I'm going to get this all in, I got to get this all in. And maybe, you know, I sure hope my kids are going to be okay if I divorce that jerk. But they'll be all right. They'll get therapy. And, and you just watch this systematically. And so what happens is that your, your evaluative frame is far larger in terms of these transformative experiences. And it's not only far larger in terms of their lives, it begins to get intergenerational because actually their participation in church is going to impact their number of sex partners and their fidelity with their spouse and their relationship with their children. And, and Yeah, I think he's touching on some good points here. More than religion necessarily shaping your sex life, the type of sex life that you seek is going to shape whether you're religious or not. If you want to have a lot of sexual partners, you're not likely to be religious or stay religious. If you want to settle down, be monogamous and build a family, 
that tends to work out much better if you're part of a religious community. So perhaps more than religion shapes your sex life, your goals and your actions with regard to your sex life will shape whether or not you're religious. Dan, and when you watch this multi-generationally, especially, especially after you're talking to people and someone comes into your office and you hear about their parents' divorce, and then you hear about their mother's boyfriends, and then you hear about the fact that, you know, they had to go to kind of a crappy... So I dated this woman. She grew up orthodox. And then about age, when she was about four, her parents became swingers. And one day she walks in and like her mother's, you know, in bed with another man. Soon thereafter, her parents divorce. She grows up in Manhattan half the time living with her father, who's just out there banging Amazon blondes. And she told me hell is growing up, you know, with very thin wall between you and your father, you know, banging a whole variety of, of women. So uh, the, the, the parent gets to have the, the thrills and the chills of uh, sexual experimentation, but it frequently comes at an enormous price to uh, the children. School if they went to college at all because they didn't have any money because dad and mom split up. And then you start listening to these in multiple levels. So my heuristic is pretty broad in terms of well-being. And whereas on one hand, people might imagine that as a pastor, I'm like, yeah, you know, real tribal. I want you in this box and I want you to act in this box in a certain way. I've seen people who have deconstructed from Christianity and I think, probably a good thing they did. Probably a good thing they did. And I actually... Yeah, if you're an empiricist, you can't claim that people who leave your religion, you know, always have a diminished quality of life. You know, some people leave your religion and they seem to obviously have an improved quality of life, tend to be happier and finer people. Actually think that maybe 10 or 20 years from now, they're probably going to come back to their faith and they will likely have a stronger, healthier, some way sadder faith because of their deconstruction than they would have had if they had just sort of white knuckled it in the institution. And so, you know, and Good that's point. part of the reason I... That's me, like why, but from my point of view, mm -hmm. that video is an example of like a, uh, an, uh, an approach to pattern spotting heuristics, which finds expression, not just in like kind of Jonathan's analysis of 666, but also in negative 48. So talking about Jonathan Paggio's video on the number 666, which in Christian numerology is the mark of the, the beast. Numerology, which is a particular QAnon follower who, who detects like uh, numbers or in the Da Vinci code or in any number of other. And you would see those as like separate in depth and, and complexity, I imagine in my case, I see them as a continuum of the same okay. heuristic. And, and so I'm criticizing the heuristic, but with a specific example. And it is mean to do it to Jonathan specifically, mm -hmm. but I, I judge from his content that he is quite open about you know being critical about specific things that he doesn't agree with and doesn't like. So he put the content out and I commented on it. That's my, my kind of view on it. It's I, I do not intend it to be like that therefore everyone has to agree in my interpretation or that I expect that he will like my engagement with his content. I know he will not like my engagement with his content and mm. i i kind of like factor that in but i could approach it in a much more empathetic and nice way and various people would say that's the better thing to do chris you know you catch more wasps with oh, good honey yeah. right yeah but my nature <laughs> is such that this i am the same person in life as i am online and offline and i'm a kind of argumentative annoying person it's it's it is you know you can ask matt the co-host it's the way i'm i'm not saying i couldn't be different i, I could i i'm not saying there's no way for me not to do that Okay, let's uh, say hello to Elliot Blatt. Elliot, what's going on, man? Ah, uh, we still can't. Now we can't hear Elliot. So, uh, hey, Luke, can you hear me now? Yeah, I'm at I my can, computer yep, now. Yep, I can hear you now, bro. Hello. Go ahead. Yes. Oh, this is terrible.
You can't hear me? Okay. All right, are we here? Yep, we're here, bro. We're live. No, I can hear you. I can hear uh, you, bro. How about Go now? Ahead. Say something. Yes, I'm here. I can hear you. We can all hear no, you. I can hear you. This is ridiculous. Okay, I'll start another Google Meet and No, 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 no. Just do we'll do it tomorrow. We'll do it tomorrow. Uh, are you winding down anyway? I'm not sure. Oh, so, okay. Wait, if you can hear me, so I can hear you now. Okay, we're fixed. Okay, great, great. Okay, Sorry. Go for it. All right. Okay. So anyway. Um so yesterday I went to the hinterlands, California. Uh, um uh, Fairfield, you know, Fairfield is about halfway between Sacramento and San Francisco. Yes, uh, no, well. it's where things get very flat, you know, it's sort of, uh, it's sort of on the outskirts of both cities. It's sort of the midpoint and, uh, it's quite hot, uh, it's flat. Um, and so through, I had a birthday party to show, go to, and some, it started at five, but somehow I sort of remembered it as being starting at two. So I sort of got there three hours early and, uh, I had to sort of kill three hours, uh, in the middle of the uh, Sacramento Delta, you know, Meth Valley, shall we say. And um, <clears throat> uh, it's weird, man. So I, I went, to, I, for, I just thought I'd need a new pair of shoes, right? I, have, I haven't got a new pair of sneakers in like three years. So I figured it's time. So I go to the mall in Fairfield and I find a shoe store. And I go inside of a shoe store. And um, how do we say this? It's it's, it's this very Wakanda rich, you know, and and people are just you know yelling at each other at top volume, you know, shrieking at each other. And uh, give me that size. No, I want this size. I want that size. You know, and got any more of these in the back? And blah blah blah. You know, on and on and on. This is alien territory for me now. I feel these aren't Tucker aliens. These are social aliens. It's it was such a light, low IQ scene. Uh, and I, I said, now I understand why new Luke does Amazon. Yeah. And it's like it was rough. So I ended up scoring a pair of shoes for 20 bucks. Right. Uh, I, I always go to the, you know, here's a little tip for you, Luke. Always go to the uh, clearance rack. Because you can usually find something for like twenty percent of the price, you know. So anyway, I got myself a nice twenty dollar pair of shoes, and then I left. But I still had plenty of time to kill, so I just start ambling around the mall. Like I've never, you know, I haven't, I've, I haven't been to the mall a long time. So I'm walking up and down the mall, and then I, uh, I end up buying some socks. You know, I'm just sort of picking off little errands while I'm trying to kill some time. So I get a pair of socks. Uh, at J.C. Penny, you know, so I got a bag full of shoes. I got a bag full of socks, and then I'm leaving, feeling feeling like I'd go for a walk in my new shoes and my new socks. I'd kill some more time by just leaving the mall, donning my shoes, donning my socks, and just going for a walk. So on the way, I'm walking, I'm retracing my steps through the mall, and uh, so I'm walking one way, and then walking towards me is this whole phalanx of what appear to be Somalians, you know? And they're very vivacious, Luke. And like, I had this just, thinking about all those Twitter videos that I'd seen, I like, uh, 
I just had this shot of fear that just went through my body, <laughs> you know, like, oh no, is this how I'm going to meet my end? You know, because they were, I wouldn't say they were charging at me, but they sort of like spread out like a, like a, like an alien army and they were marching towards me. <laughs> and uh, I really thought it was it. It was just like a momentary flash, but this is what being online will uh, do, uh, you know? It was a perfectly innocuous thing, but I, I created this, uh, you know, doom end time scenario in my mind. Now, has that ever but, happened to you? Yeah, of course, and it makes a difference. Were they were they in three piece suits? No, no, no. They were uh, they were they were dressed in you know the day's fashion. All the crap that you see at the mall, they somehow managed to acquire, which. It's like, you sort of have to start to wonder, like, where does this money come from? Because I never see these people working. <laughs> yeah. well, were, they carrying, were they carrying Bibles? No, no, no. So they weren't coming no. from a Bible study? No, that no, doesn't appear so. They were, well, they were killing time in the mall. Volumes of Shakespeare in their hands? No, no, afraid not. Afraid not. Because uh, if they were wearing three-piece suits, carrying volumes of Shakespeare and discussing the tempest like i would not feel fear yeah but no, if they right. were dressed like the type of people i often see committing crime then i would feel fear so depend on their dress their demeanor yeah now but this is true for all adolescents when they sort of yes. hang up there's this sort of like you know this vivacious spontaneous energy that they have that you know you you, you think you know, it could sort of spiral into violence, you know, but there was a certain uh, ethnographic <clears throat> component that um, sort of doubled the ante, you know. Um, and if there were, if there were uh, Somali women in their 70s, I suspect that you would not have received that shot of fear. So ethnic what? If there were Somali women in their 70s. Oh, uh, no, no, right, 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 right. No, right, so it's normal, natural, and healthy to be more aware of young men uh, of any race compared to, say, old women. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but anyway, so th this is like part one of the story. So okay. file that one away. <clears throat> so part two, as now I still have, uh, you know, another two hours to kill before this, this uh, birthday party. So... I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go carry through with my plan of um, putting on the shoes, driving across, going to the waterfront. It's sort of the back bay, you know, and there's like marshland and maybe there's a nature trail there. I'd go for a walk, kill some more time. So on the way through, I remember that I need to, I need to get gas and I need to get some fuel injector cleaner and I need to get some motor oil. So this is another errand I can sort of take off my list. So I, I go to a Napa. I go to a Napa Auto Parts store, right? And I go inside, and um, there's a nice black gentleman uh, at the um, at the cashier. And this time, and I'm sort of wow, <laughs> you know, this is great. And so I I, I I I ask him a bunch of questions about motor oil, you know, the the 10W30 versus the 10W40, and as the car gets older, do you use a 10W40? And he just starts spewing off all this information. It's like he knew everything. He was like, 
clicking all the boxes. This was like a an uh, incredibly good, satisfying com customer service interaction. And I'm like, wow. And you know, he sort of carried himself like I think he was probably ex-military. Yeah. And, and he, you know, he's a quarter. So, you know, ex-military guys they sort of comport themselves in a certain way. You know, you can sort of tell that they were ex-military, right? Yeah. And uh, and like, wow, this is great. I got some really useful information. He was respectful, polite, courteous. This is this is a nice nice experience. Maybe we're not all doomed, right? <laughs> so anyway, I got the I get the motor oil. I get the. Uh, fuel injector cleaner. I got a bunch of new information to look into, you know? And so that was good. So, so then I leave. Um, and that killed about 30 minutes total. Right. So I'm, <clears throat> I'm down to like 90 minutes to kill before this, uh, birthday party. So I find this little downtown area near where the birthday party is. And there's like a Juneteenth celebration going on. Right. Remember that new <laughs> holiday that was just created? Yeah. yeah it's tomorrow. You know? <laughs> I'm so excited, bro. <laughs> yeah. Like it was, uh, imagine my luck, you know? Yeah. And, and I'm looking, I see like, you can see from the distance, there's all these things set up. These, um, uh, what are they called? You know, those pop-ups. I'm blanking the word pop-up displays and then there's music playing and then there's, you know, so I find a place to park. I start milling through the uh, the Juneteenth celebration. And the music, look, it's this rap, you know, that's like, it's like a different world. I can't understand it. I can't, I can't even be in the presence of it. Like, I, it's so bad. It's so hard to listen to. And it's, uh, uh, I'm thinking, this is so bad. It must be a parody, right? You know, like, yeah, they're not really doing this enjoyment they're mocking it you know and i was trying sort of seeing if i could uh, appreciate it at that level but it turned out it was sincere you know? <laughs> and people were clapping and but for the wrong reason they think to really enjoy it so anyway i can only bear about 10 minutes of that right and then uh so i i find my way to the waterfront go for a walk you know kill some more time but eventually uh it comes time for the party Right, I get there. And then, you know, I, we go into this house. So these are like San Francisco expats that have been forced out of the city and they've moved to the hinterlands and they've bought property rather than, uh, you know, renting. And so they have this big, I mean, from a, from a apartment dweller's perspective, it's a huge place, right? Multiple rooms, living room, dining room, you know, multiple bathrooms, upstairs, downstairs, like, you know, a real house, you know? So... Uh, so they're ho holding this party there, and I'm sort of in awe of all the real estate. Because if you, this place in San Francisco would be like $5 million, right? And, you know, I was sort of in awe. And then slowly but surely, all these people start filing in. You know, these are all urbanites. Uh, uh, you know, mostly from Berkeley, you know, and uh, uh, well-dressed and educated and... Uh, um, uh, you know, just normies, nice Berkeley normies start filing in and there's, there's hors d'oeuvres and there's a dining table and, uh, it's just polite conversation, etc. You know, it's that one of those things, this whole sort of urban experience managed to sort of recreate itself in the hinterlands, you know? And so there's lots of chit chat, a lot of idle chit chat about music and, uh, 
wine and oh i'm going to this winery and that winery oh i love pinot noir you know this kind of crap and i'm just kind of nodding along and listening and that and that and then i sort of struck up a conversation with this woman who's from berkeley and she's typical liberal and um but we were sort of talking about the decline of San Francisco, which has now have been really precipitous and everybody's talking about it because it's un, it's unmistakable. And I'm, I'm just sort of trying to poke and prod. I'm just sort of trying to get their analysis of what's going on, you know, uh, just yep. trying to see if the different people's different gifts thing yep. Yep. have any like purchase yep. in this community. And of course it didn't, but so I, I said, well, what do you think we should do? You know, so basically I had several of these types of conversations with different people throughout the evening. And then I always sort of would end it with, well, what do you think we should do? And universally the answer was, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the, 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 they had no idea. And I think what their idea was to do is what these people had done, which was just get the hell out of the city. So that's my story. Okay. So here's my, my feedback. I would, if I were in a mall with a lot of uh, Somali teen males who uh, are dressed in, in the same way that I see a lot of people committing crimes dressing, I would get the heck out of there. I would not go to a Juneteenth uh, celebration. Uh, I'd probably like read a book, <laughs> find, or you know, go for a walk away from the the Juneteenth uh, young Somali or you know any any young men who are dressed like the people I see committing astronomical rates of crime. I would certainly stay the the heck away. But here's my thought: I think this points out the need for vouch nationalism. You should not be able to congregate in a mall as a teenage male, unless you've got like 10 adults who are willing to sign off and bear the price for your behavior. What do you think? Vouch nationalism now? I, uh, I agree. My fist is in the air. My fist okay. is in the air. Vouch nationalism well, okay. now, well, vouch nationalism tomorrow, vouch nationalism forever. Yeah. I, I missed one part of the story. So while in the mall, I, I couldn't help my nose. And my mother noticed this like 30 years ago. And she said, she said in a moment of inspired genius, she said, Americans always seem to have a cup in their hand, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And if you're in the mall, you notice this. Everybody just has this giant soft drink in their hand as if it's a permanent part of their being, you know? You can't just shop and then eat. You need to eat whilst shopping you can't like you, there's this constant intake of calories going on in america and it's so apparent in the mall you know um and the obesity just one after the other each one fatter than the next you know it was so depressing and i'm sort of muttering to myself i'm looking about how disgusting this is and then i caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror and i'm like oh my God. <laughs> I gotta give. I gotta go for a walk, bro. <laughs> so, where do you get the power, though, to do the things that you need to do to get to where you want to go? Get the power. Yes, it's a matter of power, bro. Like it's it takes power 
do the things you need to do to get to where you want to go. Are you talking like spiritually? Are you talking anything? Power, card, like the power uh, to uh, eat right, to exercise, to do all the things that you need to do to yeah. secure the life that you want. It takes power. For some people, that's God power. For some people, it's guru power. For other people, it's just internally generated power. Other people, it comes I, from I have friends, to say, it's internally generated. Yeah, but, I, I but is that working? Like, are you able to internally generate the power that you need? To do the things you need to do to get the life that you want to have because i don't i don't have that internal power no, I, I, I need I other people i need community i need spirituality i need gurus or inspiration or 12-step or psychology like i need a whole yeah. bunch of other things outside of myself because what's going on inside of me is not enough for me to get to where i want to go but what about for you i'd have to say it's internally generated in fact I spent a lot of time thinking, uh, I'm socializing, and this is what Luke says I should do. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, I'd just love to be, if I could just be alone, I could just skip this party. I was thinking about ways of skipping the party, like like finding like a nice, gracious way to get out, you know? And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't find one, right? It, meant, it would mean having to tell a whopper of a lie, and I just didn't feel like I should do that. So I actually get a lot of power from solitude, <laughs> So, so we're how, different. How, we're bad, different. how painful would things have to get before you came to the conclusion that your internally generated power was not getting the job done? Well, okay. While I was in the mall, when the mall, while I was in the mall and just sort of taking in the spectacles before me at all sides, at all corners of the compass, I'm thinking I actually started having suicidal ideation. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah. Who would want to just what's left? I don't want to be in this society. I don't want to be part of this. Like, I don't want to be a millionaire and this is what I get. You know, this is the this is the uh pot of gold at the end of the rainbow looking at this just filth. <laughs> now, a lot of people who experience suicidal ideation, for them, that would be the point at which they realize that something's really wrong with their life and that they need they need help. Well, but then Okay, so, but then as soon as I set foot outside that mall, those feelings just disappeared and I just started chuckling to myself. So, was it real suicidal ideation? I don't think so. So, how, how would you need to live in with twice as much pain as you have right now before you tried something different? Yeah, I would have to at least double. Because people don't change until the pain of what they're doing now exceeds the expected pain of changing. Uh, hold on a second. People don't do anything now unless... The pain that they're currently experiencing exceeds yeah. what they expect the pain to be if they make a change. Right? We do yeah. what is least painful. So if changing right. becomes less painful, we change. Right. If not changing is less painful, we don't change. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, sure. I agree. Um, uh, so you were on a self-improvement kick of, you know, eating right, exercise. About three yeah. weeks ago, you were telling me about this, losing weight. Yeah. How is that? How is that? progressive the past well I, I i keep I, it's been bad because i i keep getting knocked off my routine 
right? For one reason or another. Like even the shoes, like my shoes have finally worn it out to the point where, you know, they're like, sh- all the padding is gone and it's scraping against my heel. And just the pain, so it, it limited the amount of uh, distance I could walk. So I, uh, you know, I got off of that reason. Uh, work, a lot of work demands lately. So that, you know, in the in the past, I, I would have like, I would get up at six and go out for a walk at six in the morning. But now I just get up at six or seven to start working. So, um, and that, that's unfortunately got me off the routine again. So I do have a problem keeping routines for more than three or four weeks. And then they seem to dissipate. And all it takes is one disruption and then it's sort of back to ground zero. Yeah, so you need the external world to be a certain way for you to be okay. Exactly. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. It helps. It helps. Now, I make decisions, right? The external world is definitely an influence. I wouldn't say it's not, but I participate in my own, you know, failing to maintain a routine. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I can't. There are people who have adversity in the external life and still maintain routine. So I can't like necessarily use that as a crutch, saying that the world is difficult, but it definitely is an influence. So there's some some time indifference going on. You're, you're putting off what needs to be done. You're not using your time to support your own vision and to further your own goals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's yeah. some perhaps uh, idea deflection. Are you compulsively rejecting ideas that could expand your life or career? and increase your profitability? I'd probably do that, but I'm open to, I feel like I'm open to ideas. Um, but the thing is, is like, you have a pretty established routine, right? Yes. And one, and a certain portion of it works for you, right? So for yes. me to come in and say, Luke, well, you should change this aspect of your routine. And you say, no, no, I've got my own. Is that really idea deflection? Or is it just... Now I'm going to stick with what works. If you're giving me a good idea and I'm deflecting it, then it's idea deflection. Oh, if I can't hear your idea because it's so threatening to my sense of self, that's, you know, severe idea deflection. Right. So you may suggest that I buy sheets with a high apply. And if they would, mm. they would significantly enhance the quality of my life, but I'm too insecure to accept that kind of suggestion from you then I have intense idea deflection going on. You're not still sleeping on plastic, are you? I, I like to keep my room warm, so I don't yeah. use any sheets, any blankets. I just usually sleep on the floor with, uh, <laughs> with a wedge to elevate myself for the sleep apnea and a pillow. And then I wear sweats, and if the if temperature drops below 70 degrees, I just put on a very light uh, long-sleeve T-shirt. So you don't use a blanket? You just I don't sleep? use a blanket. I don't use sheets. It's just, that's bizarre, it's just me and sweats and the floor. Nah, that's bizarre. Luke, you're, it, here's what the Chinese say. Cold head, warm feet. You got to keep your feet warm, but you have to keep your head cool. So I think you, I think there you go. You have sleeping problems. You're doing it all wrong, my dude. Thanks, bro. I, I'm trying to be open to this suggestion so I don't... Don't enact idea deflection. Yeah, I know. But seriously, your your head needs to be cold. All that that immense your head, Luke, that brain of yours, you know, is like this atomic reactor that's just generating heat all day long. 
you got to let it cool off. And I mean, physically cool off. So you have one of those cooling pillows. I don't like, yeah, uh, I like, I like what I got. Yeah. Anything that I'd add is um, a woman. And I'm sure <laughs> there are a lot of women out there who would appreciate, you know, a nice, comfortable floor, a, wedge, oh, yeah. a pillow. Yeah. Um, nice, a warm, comfy temperature so they don't have to be bothered by sheets or blankets or bedding. Yeah. A nice polyester shag carpet. Oh, man. Sounds pretty sweet. Dreams, dreams are made of, man. <laughs> <laughs> so did you, did you watch the uh, History Speaks versus Mike Enoch debate on the Holocaust? I, I got home. I saw it on Twitter and uh, I tuned in for a minute and like it was about it was about 10 p.m., which is late. It's like almost midnight basketball time for me. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> it's, too, just, it's like uh, I don't want to think about the Holocaust at 10 p.m. So I just stopped. <laughs> I didn't listen to it. Is it is it worth watching? I, I haven't listened to it. So <sighs> But I can't believe you didn't want to learn about the Holocaust at 10 p.m. Yeah, it feels like, I don't know, this past six years has been just Holocaust all day long. Uh, no, I am impressed with uh, Enoch's competitor there, the guy's name, the guy on your show, Matt. History Speaks, yeah, Matt. Yeah, uh, he's definitely a very, um, he's definitely very a competent fellow. Yeah. yeah, and uh, I, I, I watched like the first five minutes. And I was just impressed with uh, how he conducted himself. So, so uh, I asked Stephen, I, just... I asked Stephen James, like, what is excessive masturbation? And he said, next question. So, <laughs> Stephen James was afraid to go there. He seemed distinctly uncomfortable <laughs> with talking about his masturbation life on the show, uh, but. You are someone who is at ease with who you are. You're at ease with reality. You're at ease with other people. Like, oh, where yeah. is the fine line between excessive masturbation and the correct amount of masturbation? Um, as long as you're not on uh, a meetup call at work. A Zoom call. Yeah, once you're, uh, if you're on a Zoom call and you just can't wait, you have a problem. What if you're rubbing the skin off your penis so that it's bleeding? Is that is that bad? Asking for a friend. <laughs> I think you need to stop before blood for bleeding. Yeah, that's okay, also so it's another it's another warning line. against wanking to bleeding. You know, I'm old school, Luke. I yeah. I'm not part of this generation, so I I uh, you know I'm around. I remember manual stick shifts, Luke. I remember um, cassette tapes. You know, there's just certain lines he just didn't cross. Hmm. Hmm. Powerful, <laughs> powerful, powerful. I know. Uh, uh, so, how long were you talking to Steve and I? Literally tuned in. I saw that you started the stream at 7 a.m. Pacific, which is. Well, when I stop streaming, I've got to do a deep carpet cleaning, like mm. move a lot of stuff out and move you know stuff back in, like vacuum the carpet and then use the, the carpet cleaner thing that I bought. So we're talking like minimum of two hours of, of work, fair dinkum work, once I stop streaming. So I'm thinking about streaming for like seven hours. 
you're really, really dreading this. Yeah, I mean, I thought yeah. by now I'd have a Sheila who'd do this for me. Yeah, but she's like, no, I need a Serta. I need a Serta. No, Serta or no deal. Would you I... do that? Would you buy a bed? Would you buy a proper bed if that? No, 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 it's so bourgeois. I am I am someone who's constantly breaking boundaries, bro. I, I don't want to be shackled with these bourgeois conceptions of betting. Yeah. You know, who is it that said the uh, hatred of the middle class is the beginning of all virtue? <laughs> Do you, I don't know who said it. I think it was one of these leftist Marxist types. Uh, which is not a quote I agree with, but I think it's uh, amusing nonetheless. I got a friend who's an Orthodox Jew who says that I don't want to buy a bed because I'd feel too guilty taking a woman to bed, and so I solve my conscience by only taking her to floor. <laughs> so you have you have you have withheld from us this little tidbit of your life—the fact that you sleep on the floor. Uh, for all these years, Luke, you don't feel a little guilty? No, I mean, how come I didn't a, know that? This is a today? performance, Elliot. This is not the real Luke Ford. This is a you, uh, know, you know, people don't get to know me by by doing a show. This is a performance, like the the real stuff that goes on in my life. I keep private and sacred, you know, with few exceptions. Okay, so finally, the floor sleeping. You decided. Yeah, finally, I'm gonna I'm gonna sell that enough. part of my soul for yeah. the show. But I had to just sell all of my soul willy nilly, just like, you know, every um, live stream, just sell my whole soul and try to monetize it. Like, no, I, I keep most of it back. I protect it. Okay. Because some of us would think that you just let it all hang out, as it were. Ah, that's a performance, bro. Uh, uh, now I see. Now I see. Um, <clears throat> all right. Well, Luke, uh, it's been fun, but I, I got to do my next journey, my step on my journey. Okay, blessings. It was it was real though. It's been real. Okay. All okay, right, so blessings. Australia, England, day end of day three of their first te test match at Edgebaston. I think we can all remember where we were in two thousand and five, where England just barely hung on to win by two runs in one of the top five most thrilling test matches of all time. England won that Ashes series. But I identify with, with cricket bowlers, you know, who catch the batter just, you know, leg before wicket. And then they turn to the ump and they just go, how's that? How's that? How's that? that, that that's, that's what I feel like when I, I do a live stream. How's that? But it's just like, yeah, I, I arguing on the internet and, and being like sarcastic and stuff are kind of, if it turned off a whole lot of people and I felt I was being too cruel, I, I wouldn't do it. But I, I don't think that I'm, I'm too cruel. But I do listen to feedback. So you know, but, but that's the same. That's the same thing you critiqued the change that you perceive in Twitter with Elon Musk. You, you, the critique you had is that since Elon Musk took over, Twitter is more reactive, less productive, and and you're basically doing the same thing. That's what I hear you saying. No, and, and so you're basically saying you like doing it. So I'm saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in, I, what I'm saying is like in in the case for me and the way that you know online things, I the, there's the concept of like the beat rules and stuff, right? And and people that that have been involved in internet debates on forums and stuff. That's kind of my my personality. Now, if you are the owner of a social media company and you tweak the algorithm to promote like a you know partisan polemical content and outreach via it. That's a completely different thing. And it is also like a whole bunch of social media companies have already done that. And we kind of know where it goes. So 
I, I don't begrudge people to use social media in the way that they want. You just have to deal, you know, you have to deal with the consequences of whatever you, way you choose to interact. But the algorithm changes that I think Elon has brought has, uh, you know, it, dep it depends how you in interact with Twitter, but there's a lot of videos of people being hit by trains or buses, people fighting in CCTV <laughs> footage and uh, like on the For You tab. And that before was like, um, you know, pre prevented from like kind of trending in general uh, tabs. But I think Elon prioritizes that that will get reactions and people and it's the same reason it. you put it on and act that way on Twitter. Yeah, That's but... basically what you just told me. No, no. So I think it's a bit different because like what I'm trying to say is like, I, I don't, I think that being harshly critical can provoke, you know, can provoke responses in people. I know that. Right. Uh, and that's exactly what reactivity in Twitter is designed to do, provoke responses, because the goal yeah, of but, social so media is engagement. But that's the difference, because the goal, so if I wanted that, then my, your, uh, your interpretation would be, my goal is to get a uh, Pajot and to get him to react and to get him to feud. No, no, and, that's not your goal. No, you're clear yeah. about that. That's not your goal. Yeah, my goal is to criticize the specific, like, uh, thing which I see right. as, the, like, critical, but not not in the sense of like, because I want to drive engagement and, and create a feud, right? No, like, I know, you're, but, but see, I hear two things. One of the things is I would say, and we don't have enough time to get into this, but you're essentially trying to fight a religious war or a spiritual war, because it's, a, it's, a, it's basically a culture war that you're engaging in. And you know, you've got ideas of sides and that's absolutely normal. We sort of binary the world, good, bad, and from there. That, 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 I wouldn't and, say binary because like the, the, the model is that, the, I, I, the thing that I don't have is that everyone's perspective is, equally valid like it's equally fine to say russia is being right. no 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 know. right you have a moral universe that you're engaging in and you're right. trying to push the moral universe more towards the good and resist the evil that's what you're doing i get that i don't deny but, that but the, i guess the bit that the, i'm trying to just check that if you deny is like there is a reality right like that in, in events like realist. russia and, and that, that kind of thing so there are people that think that ukraine is the aggressor and that there it's a denazification pro uh, okay yeah yeah so i i'm a moral realist now whether okay. i'm in touch with all the moral reality that's another question whether i'm right, right. on it that's another question but i'm a moral realist and so okay. what i hear so you saying the, is yeah so a moral realist is someone who believes that there is a morality that exists outside of the individual's head and so thinking about this i realized that i am a moral realist who conducts his show as though I'm most of the time, as though I'm not a moral realist. So I conduct the show as, you know, different people have different gifts, different understandings of, of what's right and wrong. And the only way you can get to some kind of transcendent, you know, supposedly uh, objective standard of morality is if you make a leap of faith. And I don't argue about faith on the show. So I live my life in part by faith. You know, I believe in God. I believe in Orthodox Judaism. I believe that God's the, the force behind the Torah. So I live my life as a moral realist, but I conduct the show as though I'm not a moral realist. So maybe I'm deluding myself somewhere, but that's how I understand things. I On one hand, what you're trying to do is push, you know, push towards the the correct, towards the good by um by being and and you're an argumentative person. So you're taking your yes. argumentative nature and your moral orientation, and you're going to Twitter and you are doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's it, a, yeah, yeah. And that... your, your critique of Twitter since Musk, I personally haven't noticed much of any difference, but we all experience it depending because it's a social media platform. I'm not going to argue that one. It way depends on each of the but feeds. Yeah. It's sort of like there's this area of town that's really nice and it's very quiet and the streets seem to be okay. That would say, let's say, a Twitter under an ideal situation. And then there's Twitter where, you know, sort of the, the regime, the, the mayor is, is just kind of liking to provoke um, excitement and drama by pitting people together. So that'd be bad Twitter and good Twitter. And in either Twitter, you go out and start knife fights. So I don't right, know how right. it's a moral value to start a knife fight in a good neighborhood and then blame the bad mayor for having a knife fight environment. So that would be in the case of like you, what you, you know, a point I think that would like would make it clear is that you and I 
would agree that like the targeting of the the dead parent, the children, uh, the parents of dead children, is something that can be criticized harshly in a knife fight way, and it isn't the same as somebody else going out in a knife fight way to advocate that we should target the parents. I would of children. argue that if I want. So talking about Alex Jones, Chris Kavanaugh says Alex Jones is beyond the pale for encouraging the targeting of the Sandy Hook parents. Right after that mass shooting in Sandy Hook, Alex Jones said it was a psyop, and he essentially encouraged his followers to make life miserable for the poor parents who'd had their children murdered at the Sandy Hook Elementary School. I want to get someone to stop doing something bad. Well, I'm, I'm not a pacifist, so I do believe in police and military, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of personal engagement, generally speaking, mm. um, if I want to actually get in touch with the person, I would rather have some moral transformation than Which just- Which person? Uh, it depends on the person. And, and you know, I'm not about to try to build a relationship with Alex Jones. It's not going to happen. Right. And the, so the, the, my target is not Pajot. If I, uh, I'm not trying to trans necessarily transform You're attacking the spirit of numerology that's right. out there in the culture. <laughs> the, the practice, I would say. But yes, the, the spirit, if you prefer. But, but yes, the, 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 like a, a potentially, generally not that harmful thing. But overall, I think something which like it isn't a great heuristic to follow. So yeah. But I, 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 take, I do take the point, Paul, that the, uh, like, there is an approach which is, you know, more in line with the, the kind of thing that you're emphasizing and, and which I think Andrea responds to. And, and I think there's, there's good psychology research about, you know, on an individual level that you, you will convince more people by being a lot more empathetic and, you know, like considerate to their, their worldview. Um, like if, if, if that's what you want to achieve, that might be the more effective way to do it, right? Like for everyone to be more like a social worker than like, you know, it's, it's getting a harsh critique is never enjoyable, right? Um, but I, I would say that there is enough variation in the world and in my inbox that the kind of way that I critique people is not entirely ineffective at reaching people and maybe is part of the, the you know, the kind of tapestry <laughs> that exists for critical content. But I, but I Okay, I think a good discussion there between Chris Kavanaugh, who is secular, who's an atheist and, and a materialist and a Christian pastor. Just a little bit more from... Robert Wright here talking with Mickey Kaus from Friday Night. I didn't know how to break this to you, Mickey, but I have lost that love and feeling. We can talk about that. Um, the, um, uh, I, I, there is a, a lot of fervor on the Democratic side for this thing called the Popular Vote Compact. Mm -hmm. Basically says, you know, we're sick of losing the, uh, losing the electoral vote after we win the popular vote. Although one time John Kerry almost won the electoral vote after losing the popular vote. So it can work both ways. Usually it works for, against the Democrats. So they want to substitute the popular vote. Understandable. There are all sorts of arguments why you should have a popular vote, why you should have an electoral vote. Probably the popular vote is you know, more democratic, but it's not in the Constitution. So they say, well, we'll have states pledge to cast their electors for the winner of the popular vote. And as soon as we get 270 or however many electoral votes you need worth of states, it will go into effect. And then we will, in effect, have a popular vote election because, uh, you, know, uh, you know, because the popular vote winner will win the electoral college, too. And it's, a way, it's an attempt to jury rig the system on top of the Constitution to give it something the Constitution doesn't have. The problem is we've had, our, we've had it drummed into our heads for, since the uh, Trump election that we, you know, states have to have to cast their electoral votes for the winner of their primaries. They can't countermand the state electors. They can't send a separate state slate that they like. And this totally violates that principle. It also sort of violates, uh, I think it probably violates the revision to the Electoral Count Act. Maybe not. Uh, but uh, it, it, it just, it, it's, it's too clever by half. And it, 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 it sort of, you know, state electors could say, well, if the liberals want us to cast a vote, ignore the state's voters and cast votes for this person who won the popular vote, you know, why can't we ignore the electors and cast a vote for whoever the Federalist Society wants to be president? I mean, if, you know, if we have an independent power to do that, let's 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 do it our way. It's just that it, in the left seems completely oblivious to this contradiction. I don't know I if mean, it's an exact. I 
think that's an excellent uh, critique there by Mickey Kaus. Right, uh, History Speaks, Matt Cockerell debated Mike Enoch Friday night on Holocaust denial. And uh, Matt, a PhD student in history at London School of Economics, he was impaled on the horns of a dilemma because he really wanted to have this debate with Mike Enoch. On the other hand, Mike Enoch sensed how badly Matt wanted this debate. So Mike Enoch started pushing back with all sorts of demands that Matt found outrageous. So here's a conversation between uh, Matt Cockrell and uh, Veronica. And frankly, behavior, which I think encountered many of the other three people had debated on Holocaust denial, Jim Brizzoli, Thomas Dalton, Marshall Lore. Uh, none of them were bitches about um, uh, format. None of them were filibustering. All were pretty easy to arrange a format with. Didn't try to get out of other obligations. Didn't lie constantly. And so Mike really is actually giving other deniers a, a bad name, <laughs> funny as that is to say. <laughs> so, yeah, let me just talk about how we got here. And then, Veronica, I'm going to have you pull up a couple of the things I emailed you. Uh, just as evidence for some of the stuff I'm talking about. Okay, so way back in 2020, way, way, way back, you know, we're all different people back then, right? Especially Veronica, but no, <laughs> we're all different people back then. It's a different world. Trump is still president and so on. Uh, we agreed, all four, four people agreed. Uh, I agreed. And So here's some context. I did a lot of shows with Mike Enoch and Eric Stryker, and I think they all were quite cordial. Uh, there was no yelling. So Friday night, you know, Matt and Mike were just degenerating into to yelling at each other. And I think, haven't seen the Friday night show of Matt versus Mike Enoch, but I think just from my own interactions with Matt, that I, I suspect that he played a role in this. So I respect Matt, I like Matt, and he sometimes triggers me because I find him often you know, rude and condescending because he, he'll just frequently interject you know, moral judgments into conversations that, where I don't believe the conversations are enhanced by his moral judgments. He might say, oh, you know, I heard an old stream where, you know, you describe so something as, as degenerate and, you know, I, I want you to know that I don't hold that against you, right? So there's nothing like pronouncing moral judgments to really inhibit and infuriate someone that you're having a conversation with. Also, if you're frequently interrupting someone, that also tends to in infuriate people so those are just some, some thoughts on what may have played a role in the degeneration of the Matt Cockerell, Mike Enoch debate Friday night. And Avi Biderman agreed to debate Mike Enoch and Eric Stryker in Holocaust denial. And then in 2021, we sent our, the agreement was we're going to both send our information and um, we did that. So we sent our information in uh, 2021. And then at that point, Mike and Stryker quit the debate because they were really upset over a moderator or host that was Jewish, supposedly, or radically political. Um, and I agreed to change the debate, change the moderator. I was like, I thought it was dumb because I didn't think the moderator was going to do anything. But I'm like, okay, whatever. That's the big hangup. And Avi did not agree. Um, so it ended up that uh, our 2v2 changed into a 1v1, Mike Enoch and I. And I just said, okay, Mike, I've sent the information. This is back in September 2021. Send me your stuff whenever you can, right? Um, and since then, we've had uh, a year and a half of dodging, combined more than a year and a half of dodging, combined with excuses and lies constantly to his audience. I've debated since 20, September 2021. Uh, three people in Holocaust denial, unless Marshall Lore was before that, at least two and, and maybe three. I don't remember exactly what Marshall Lore debate was. And uh, the bike has continued to delay, delay, delay. And um, let's pull up the first article I sent you now, Veronica, if you will. Share the screen and pull up number one, the substack. Okay, here it is. Yeah. Okay, I'll just uh, leave it there. Lawrence Connor says I should uh, stop streaming, get to cleaning my floor. Lawrence, I mean, you can't stand me, man, but you know what keeps bringing you back? to uh, this show. Just, uh, just a tad curious why you keep coming back. Terrific uh, 
podcast, Embrace the, the Void, by left-wing academic, philosopher, and what what was the about section here? Embrace the, the Void, contact, uh, uh, forget, forgetting the name of the host, but anyway, let me play a little bit from latest episode released June 9th, The Language of Terrorism with Chris Cavanaugh. And, and like sure. even me, right? You know, I'm a know. very minor person, but I've been, the only people who have offered me money to do stuff are like uh, weird, <laughs> right? wing leaning stuff. So yeah, that's, right. I, I think there's I a- weird uh, academic activities. Yeah, just just like stuff which I actually wouldn't mind doing, except then I'm kind of like, well, but I don't want to accept money uh, to do that. And I, yeah, just listed alongside certain other individuals. Exactly. Um, yes, correct. Yeah. Um, right. You're afraid was... of guilt by association because you're a coward. I understand. Uh, let's talk about <laughs> yeah. your papers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh no, one other I... thing, Aaron. One other yeah. thing. This possibly might not be right, but sub, like kind of supplement chilling. I guess this relates to that mm -hmm. whole. All right. Hosted by Aaron Rabinowitz left-wing philosopher thing mm -hmm. I, I i you know i would class huberman and uh uh lex friedman a little bit in a, a slight so talking about andrew huberman of stanford university the separate sphere um and, but sure. th there just seems a, a slight more tolerance towards chilling things but i don't know I, that could be just i'm, I'm not exposed enough to left-wing content to see what they're chilling um i bet they're chilling naturalism stuff that is basically the same thing, just probably packaged differently and, you know, like slightly different uh, vibes. Um, yeah. They're I, definitely you know, shilling parasociality. Yeah. Like, the, the sure, you know, sure. all of, I mean, ha with Hassan, Avi, and a whole bunch of people, the, the kind of point is often made that they are millionaires living in mansions while, uh, like, decrying capitalist systems, which, you know, I'm not saying, I'm, I am aware of the little guy popping out of the well um saying you know mm -hmm, the uh, right. curious but but i but i do think there is something that guy right yeah i do think there's something of a potential contradiction there sure. when you're earning you know eighty thousand or something from your podcast per month um yeah i i, I that's <laughs> capitalistically you're very successful right right um Okay, I have more thoughts there, but maybe we'll save them for bonus stuff. I want to talk some about your papers before we run out of time. And I, if I say your papers, you are the second author, which I assume just means you did the editing. Um, uh, it's relatively accurate, yeah. Pretty much so accurate, the... right? Taking credit for, uh, it looks like a woman's work, I think, in this case. Julia Ebner, who I should probably get on to actually explain these things at some point. You should. She's very yeah. good. Uh, uh -huh. She's a researcher of extremism uh, for quite a long uh, time. Um, but, but actually, an interesting trajectory because started out as you know working in ngos and and kind of research mm -hmm. think tanky kind of stuff but now has just uh completed or is in the process of completing her phd and she is my mm. uh i'm one of her supervisors so it's oh work. i see so you're just getting credit for her work because you're her supervisor i, I understand that's um, it yeah <laughs> i i just so, provide the annoying feedback constantly <laughs> yeah so you shared these with me and they are definitely in my wheelhouse. The titles of the two papers that you shared were uh, The QAnon Security Threat, A Linguistic Fusion-Based Violence Risk Assessment, and Is There a Language of Terrorists a Comparative Manifesto Analysis? Um, I tried to parse these, but they're really dense with, like, woke verbiage about, like... Woke verbiage? <laughs> yeah, you've got all this stuff about high prevalence of linguistic identity fusion, which obviously is just critical theory nonsense. Um, no, no, so no, I'm going to no. try to parse for me, like, what's going on with this... There's no fusion language concept here. Don't be smart me, Aaron. There's no critical theory. <laughs> in... Julia, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, so the one one thing I can speak to is like Julia is applying a model, 
a theoretical model um, about uh, radicalization and extremism, which I've worked on quite a lot in my ritual work and which my uh, my kind of boss, mm. my PhD supervisor, Harvey Whitehouse, is the is the person who developed it. And so she's applying that model, which we've been working on for quite a while, to uh, this material. So the, yeah, the model then for starters, yeah. Yeah, so I, identity fusion is... You know, psychologists like to study group bonding and these kind of things, and they like to come up with terms uh, and and develop mm -hmm. skills, right? Mm -hmm. Self-report mm -hmm. or other types of skills where they measure concepts and then they apply it to the specific um, psychological term that they've come up with. And, and then other psychologists use it and they reap uh, citations, right? And they carve up the messy qualitative world into like quantitative artificial categories. But so identity fusion is one of those. Um, and it's, it's contra, uh, it contrapositioned to social identity theory, group identification. Um, okay. I, I, there's various reasons that people have proposed why these are different types of like bonding and why it's significant. But the, the kind of key aspects that I think are worth um, considering and apply, even if you don't really buy the actual, you know, distinctions between these two broad categories of group bonding are that uh, identity fusion is supposed to be where there's strong relational ties towards a group. Uh, so instead of like a depersonalized categorical type membership where you, you don't feel attached to, you know, it's more the group that you're attached to, like a, a religious group, right? Like if you imagine uh -huh. you don't know all the Christians. as a Catholic or something. Right, yeah, like that kind of thing. Or it worked for a company, <laughs> right? Um, the way that example came to mind when I was chatting with you. <laughs> yeah, oh, and, and, and also an important aspect is in the traditional social identity uh, theory model, there's this thing called functional antagonism, which is basically humans are made up of all different uh, like social and, and personal identities, right? And broadly sure. speaking, when a social identity is activated, your personal identity goes down. So mm -hmm. in, if you are, for example, uh, Aaron, with your friends and family talking, you're Aaron, right? And your idiosyncratic habits are of interest and whatnot. If you're Aaron in Japan, you're an exemplar of an American and you will be mm -hmm. kind of presented in that way. I think this is a, a sophisticated and important point. In, in other words, as I understand it, the, the weaker your personal identity all right, the more labile your identity, the more you are incentivized to get rid of an unwanted self and to dissolve yourself in a group. This is developed in much more depth by Eric Hopper in his classic work, The True, true Believer. So if you're a true believer, you want to get rid of your unwanted self, dissolve yourself into a group, and then you are much more liable to do all sorts of, you know, nasty or self-sacrificial or extreme things that you would not do when you're just an individual that you know you're speaking for americans or whatever and you might be become more stereotyped or if you're at a football match and you are you know the the other people are supporting the rival team that's the identity which is more salient in that context so all these are saying that like there's a kind of hydraulic relation right so uh, our identities vary depending on context right at at work i may primarily have one identity when I'm hanging out with a certain group of friends, I may primarily identify as a writer. When I hang out with other friends, my primary identity will be that of an Orthodox Jew. In another context, my primary identity will be that of an Alexander Technique teacher. So the situation often determines which of our identities is preeminent. And uh, an implication of it, it would be including for things like group violence, right? That right. personal identity can uh, dissolve to some extent in highly social identity salient contexts so, and yeah. you could be more violent. Yeah, at least I can understand just so, so as I understand what you're describing, these aren't like, it's either this or that theories. It's like, these are two different models for how sometimes there's a relationship between identity and individuals. Is that right? It, so, yes. So uh, I kind of mix things in there, but what I just described that functional antagonism principle is right. classical social identity theory, right? And, right. and that's right. the kind of... So, yeah, so, so just like broadly speaking, though, psychologically, what it seems like you're describing are 
one kind of person to group identity where it's not about interpersonal connections with other individuals so much as a subsuming of personal identity into a group identity. You're Nazis, you're, you know, you're, you're yeah. Catholics in the broad sense versus, you know, like if you have your Irish Catholics who like are, are Catholic because they are closely connected to a family or community or something. And, and it, the, the identity goes via those interpersonal relations. That's the thing that y'all are focused on. Is that right? So identity fusion where it dis right. is distinctive from this is essentially saying that there are plenty of group contexts and, and like strong group bonds were personal and group identity are kind of synergistically activated and self-reinforcing mm -hmm. such that right. you are interpersonally connected to individuals in the group or potentially the group in a relational way, you know, like personifying the group, but like, uh, but that interpersonal relational style bonds are important and your personal identity remains salient as well mm -hmm. as the group identity. And, and the important distinction here would be like, if you're uh, like, if your group is attacked, it is like your personal identity being attacked and vice versa. If you're attacked, you can uh, like transpose that onto the group is being attacked. So that doesn't happen in the classic social model. In social identity okay. theory, it is more, more described as like, if you're then highly identified, your personal identity goes down, right? So like if the, if mm -hmm. the group is being attacked, that's not necessarily directly uh, like an attack on your personal identity, unless you're like subsumed. I thought it was like being more like a one directional, like, you know, if someone attacks the Nazi party, then they're attacking every individual, but we don't care about the individual's identity yeah, that, being attacked. It is, it is like that. It's just this, like, mm -hmm. there's just this weird quirk about, like, personal activation. It's kind of like psychologists, you know, I doing see. studies where they try to make so social or personal identity salient and then say, if you threaten a group identity, does it cause a stronger reaction if you have this kind of body right. or whatever? And the way they're measured is, like, using, you know, verbal scales or in particular fusion is often associated with this variation of the inclusion of self and other scale, which is like these right. two circles. And you, you know, say which one represents your relationship with the group to them overlapping and being like subsumed. Um, yeah. And I want to get into the methods in these studies a little bit, because I'm curious about how that works and what you think like we can really derive from this. Um, but let's just say broadly speaking, just to help people feel grounded in sort of practically what you're describing. Cause like, I want to make sure that people are getting a sense of what this looks like for human psychology on the ground. What does it look like in terms of, you know, behavioral things that you're checking for here? What are you, what are you concerned might be the case if it's true that, you know, there's a bunch of this um, linguistic identity fusion running around in QAnon? Yes, so this is the issue. So the um, the the model uh, proposed by Harvey Whitehouse, the anthropologist at Oxford, is that when you have this uh, strong relational type of bonding, you know, identity fusion, or just you know some form of relational bonding with a group, and you have a perceived external threat, um, uh, and ideally when you have a group which endorses violent action, right? Uh, this is important as well. Like what group values mm -hmm. are activated, then you have like a potent. Uh, tinderbox for extreme pro-group action. Now, if your group has group values, which are like the extreme pro-group action, they sacrifice your life to do humanitarian work, right? Like white helmet kind of stuff sure. in, in Syria. This can be very good, right? Like because you are willing to lay down your life for a cause and to, you know, help help people out uh, if, when there's like a crisis situation. Um, however, if there are uh, like endorsements of, of violent action, this kind of bonding is uh, proposed to be particularly likely to lead to people uh, performing violent actions, not just endorsing them, but actually conducting them. Whereas compared to the classic model. Yeah. And the argument is that the, the classic model, it's not that it can never lead to violence. There's plenty of occasions where people are like highly ideologically committed to a group and, and you know, are willing to perform actions or um, like uh, de-individuated in, in a group scenario and, and perform violence. But it's more that that can also occur where people will ideologically endorse violence, but not be willing to do it. Right. And, and, the argument is that identity fusion is the better driver or this kind of relational group bonding is a better group driver and predictor of like actual uh, violent action. Yeah, I have two questions. One is I'd be curious if you could give any like clear cut case examples where you're like, this is very strongly driven by this kind of identity fusion, this particular violent action. And I also what came to mind is, is there a connection to the particular kind of playbook of like in-person cult 
you know, like identity fusion, do, do you yeah. see like high identity fusion in those, in like, and that drives, you know, behavior within those communities more strongly. Yeah. So like, it's not just the particular model proposed by like Harvey Whitehouse that, that makes this argument. Like if you take Scott Adrian, the anthropologist, he also emphasizes, right, that what um, the kind of potent combination is a, a devotion to secret values, which you can see as the ideological component, right? Secret values that being mm -hmm. values that you won't trade for any amount of money and, and you kind of regard as, you know, beyond negotiation that Palestine is uh, mm -hmm. the land of the Palestinians, for example, right? Um, then, but the other side of that, he talks about this this kind of relation, intensely relational connection with other people and, and a kind of, you know, band of brothers or that kind of thing. And so when you look at people say the 9-11 terrorists, right? They're, there is the aspect where they're committed to the jihad, right, and to attack. So Jonathan Haidt would talk about this being ties bind and blind. Once you get tied to a particular community or to sacred values, right, you will both feel a strong sense of connection, but you'll also become blind to certain things. Attack America for its perceived crimes, um, and mm -hmm. uh, they're in on Al-Qaeda ideology. However, they're also arranged in cells where they are small, closely knit group of people with strong relational ties who, you know, self-reinforce. And this model you see very often, even when you have a bigger organization where you might have like a terrorist, uh, you know, a, yeah. a, an international terrorist organization, often organized into these smaller cells for the, the groups that are going to perform attacks or that kind uh -huh. of thing. So uh -huh. okay. it, it, there's not, it's not that there's no exception to this. You do get right. people who do things on their own or, you know, um, are kind of forced into it because of circumstances. Like, for example, an alternative would be, or I don't know if this is actually an, an alternative, maybe in a way um, supports this, but like the kamikaze pilots in Japan are often presented as like these, uh, you know, brainwashed fanatics who were willing, mm -hmm. happy to die for the emperor. But we know from their diaries and from records about the training that they um, enjoyed and letters that they sent that, you know, there was no option really. Like the the way it was presented was, this is the correct thing to do. And yes, they were indoctrinated, you know, for, for the education system, but also they felt a very strong obligation to their family. And if they don't do it, someone else sure. in their you know regiment or whatever is going to take part in it. So it, it, that creates that like, is that the, the, because people really, you know, want to sacrifice their life or is that more, you know, the kind of uh, like a, an, a structural system that forces people to sacrifice their life, but still in mm. there is this important thing about, you know, relational ties, be it to family. Yeah. So much of what we think of as being individual, oh, you know, I'm this way or I'm that way, or I think this, I do this because I believe it's right. So much of what we think is coming from an individual is really something that we've learned and that we pick up from the community around us from from our family and friends and extended community or to like fellow soldiers so i think models that downplay that aspect are often missing an important component and in in the case with these there's, there's actually three papers there's one more um with with julia that is looking at uh so we, we kind of, one of the papers is looking at mm. these 15 manifestos um oh sorry yeah, you did send the third one i apologize um you know the, the third one out. the third one there's two of them that go together so Oh my God, we did have an academic paper here that is looking at various manifestos, including Mein Kampf. They know that if people just delve even a little bit into Mein Kampf, they can completely lose their minds. They can get fired from prestigious positions in life. They can give up, you know, some six-figure job and end up, you know, driving for Uber.
very dangerous stuff. Two of them are focused on these manifestos. And we basically did like a content analysis of the manifestos, looking at these uh, like kind of linguistic categories or linguistic markers for a whole bunch of different things, including identity fusion, including uh, social identification with the group, but but also, you know, dehumanizing language, uh, mm -hmm. conspiracy beliefs, so on. Yeah, and so I want to get into your methods some. Because um, I think it's, it's helpful to be able to understand kind of how the sausage gets made a little bit. Um, otherwise, it just sounds like hand-waving and making claims. Um, but I want to bait this. So talking about dehumanizing language, is there any you know, substantial number of people who, doesn't, who don't frequently use dehumanizing language? I mean, the most liberal, the most left-wing, the most pro-diversity people will still refer to vast swaths of humanity as absolute rubbish. Right? The, the complex and diverse nature of humanity is too much for almost all of us. And so we may have an in-group based on our family, on our race, on our ethnicity, on our religion, on our belief system, on our geography, on our profession. It's almost a human imperative to find all sorts of ways of just dismissing the humanity of vast swaths of the, of the world so that we can you know, be better situated to deal with the complicated nature of reality. We just don't want to engage with so many outgroups. And this seems to be just as prevalent on the left as the right. Took a little bit more because I think it seems to me intuitively, you know, check my logic on this, but if what y'all are saying is accurate, right? We have this question in America in particular right now, but generally about stochastic terrorism that, hmm. you know, your Alex Joneses of the world say certain things and those, there's, a, there's a decent chance that those- So stochastic means random, infrequent, behaviors turn into you know, those claims turn into behaviors by certain listeners right um what it seems like you're saying is if you look at two communities and one of them has this much higher rate of linguistic identity fusion representing a kind of relational connections within the you know the the um but smaller communities that those individuals if their ideology is attached like you said to a broader you know alex jones kind of narrative they're going to be at higher risk it seems like of actually taking terrorist actions for example is that the concern yeah so i i think the the kind in in harvey's model the the kind of Three factors that are emphasized is the presence of identity fusion, existential threat, uh, like a perceived existential threat, and a group condoning like violent actions, right? So there, there is the ideological um, component. So I know how ruthless I get when I'm running late to an important uh, appointment. Uh, so I know how ruthless I will get if my you know, in-group is under attack, under threat. So I think this is just pretty much pervasive. People become much more... You know, in-group identifying, much more racist, you know, much more suspicious of outsiders, the more stress they feel, the more of a threat that they feel. Of it. But so if... So if the 2024 election in the United States, for example, is conducted under an atmosphere of, you know, great internal or external threat of, you know, decreasing sense of, of safety in the public square then that would play to Republicans' advantage because conservatives tend to poll much higher with regard to uh, tough foreign policy and tough attitudes towards law enforcement and punishing criminals. On the other hand, if we're relatively prosperous and feeling safe in 2024, that will appeal to Democrats who will provide you know, social welfare spending and have much more soothing things to say about our groups. So the more right-wing you are, the more likely you are to have negative feelings and suspicions about outgroups. The more liberal and left you are, the more open you're likely to be to outgroups. If you have those three things together, that that, that is a, a potentially more dangerous set of catalysts than 
uh, other factors which are also important like things like martyrdom narratives or justification of violence or uh, sorry or uh, dehumanization like these kind of things so there's there's a whole bunch of you know there's a mm -hmm. lot of work on what kind of things drive people so i think the more stress you're under the more of a threat you feel the more likely you are to use dehumanizing language and thinking to engage in violent actions or to even or endorse violent actions which are different right that's because there's a lot more people that endorse violent actions than actually engage in them um, sure. and the, the it's not like you oh i forgot to talk to Eli elliot blatt about this but he's often looking for oral candy so can a moderate podcast ever be as compelling as entertaining can it grab you and move you nearly as much as a more extreme podcast right People with moderate views in, in politics, religion, all right, they frequently get, you know, more of a charge, more of a sense of excitement, more sense of fulfillment from listening to perspectives that are far more extreme than their own. And most people, for example, don't endorse terrorism, but uh, many people have uh, sympathy you know, for, for terrorists if the terrorism is being conducted on behalf of their in-group. want people to be endorsing violence and to, you know, dehumanizing the right group. But but if you can only, <laughs> yeah. if the goal is to stop, you know, violence from happening, you want to know what is the, the most likely people to engage in violence. And, and that's yeah. kind of um, mm -hmm. what what we're interested in looking at. Like, is it possible to identify um, like higher right. risks? So there's a couple of tempting threads to pull on there, but I do want to hear a little bit about methods first. And then I'm going to like try to cause you to say inappropriate things. Um, <laughs> how does this work? You, you know, I, like in your, in your method descriptions, right, we get a bit of like coding of these things. I'm not sure that like, I think coding is probably a term people might understand intuitively, but like, do you want to give some sense of how, how your approach works and what level of confidence you come away with that this is tracking something out there in reality? Yeah. So, so like I said, in, in two of the papers and they're really connected, there's a uh, 15 manifestos that are examined and this includes like 12, which are ideologically extreme um, and things like Dylan Roof's manifesto, Brenton Tarrant, the Christchurch Shooters Manifesto, uh, Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, <laughs> right? The classics, mm, the classics. Sure. Um, and My God, how, how dangerous is that? They're analyzing Mein Kampf. Even to, to look at that, that document is to you know, risk losing your soul. Elliot Blatt says, I don't necessarily seek out extreme content, but these days the more radical analysis seems to better describe reality. But my question was, is it as easy for a moderate podcast to be compelling compared to a more extreme podcast? Is it as easy for a moderate podcast to provide an emotional charge as a more extreme podcast? So it would seem to me it's 10 times more difficult for a moderate podcast to provide that emotional charge and that compelling sense that uh, often comes with the more extreme content. And we have three moderate comparison uh, manifestos or speeches, right? Simon, Simon de Bouvier, The Second Sex, Martin Luther Simon. King, I Have a Dream Speech, Greta Thunberg, Our House is on Fire. Um, so Those these were, moderate. well, like, so they're ideologically uh, activated, but in terms of, uh, like, violent oh, self-sacrifice, okay. ideologically extreme. Like, the comparison group matters, right? Anders Breivik, Elliot sure. Rogers. Okay, okay. <laughs> these There's so, a lot of few people in I Have a Dream Speech, I'll give you that. Yeah, so... Um, so anyway, there's a lot, there's a, a large amount. Okay, I found my notes from earlier. When you're looking for oral, A-U-R-A-L, excitement, is it easier to find that with an extreme podcast rather than a moderate one? I know that I have an unhealthy addiction to excitement, and I find it a lot easier to get excited about more extreme stuff. Now, didn't S apply sing about I can't get excited? Oh, they even, they even did, they did a song. I mean... Every profound thought has been encapsulated in an air supply song.
ever since feeling now would take my life into a year ago you say you love me again i cannot say what i cannot do it's been too long without someone how could you let me sink this far away from you now you're here wondering why you can't get near i can't get excited can't get excited there's a thousand things to do i can't do anything with you i can't get excited can't get excited you can see me look right through i don't feel like i used to i can't get excited of uh, text there right and and then the question is okay so how to look at it and there's a lot of different ways that you can look at it you could you could do it qualitatively just read them all detect themes and and kind of character okay a friend says if you like ideas won't that lead you to extremities because that is what is novel so i'm always excited about some idea and they change week to week day to day month to month year to year because i'm not married i don't have a family so i'm probably you know more vulnerable to my changing intellectual forms of excitement i'm to the extent i'm ideological i to the extent i'm intellectual i'm an intellectual what is it i don't want to what's that david lee roth song oh i'm an intellectual gigolo like I'm, I'm always falling in love with some new pretty exciting idea but ultimately staying staying loyal to numb to none if you prefer thinking in terms of your family your people your interests you won't necessarily be perhaps as radical. If you're interested in people, you might get immune to a degree from fringe ideas. Yeah, so I think if you're connected to your family, friends, community, you're much less likely to, to be extreme and antisocial. Rise, you know, qualitatively, what is, yeah, what, what, what you see there. Um, and <clears throat> you, can, you can also see if people uh, detect the same so Elliot Black completely resonates with that Air Supply song. I can't get excited. It pretty much you know, summarizes this, this feeling of ennui, which has washed over him at times. Elliot says, a moderate podcast seems like wallpaper. Pleasant, but ultimately uninteresting. That's why you need to go for the more extreme stuff like Embrace the Void with Aaron Rabinowitz, the left-wing atheist philosopher here talking with another left-wing atheist, Chris Kavanaugh themes right so it, 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 one mm -hmm. thing which you might want to do with content analysis is give people a set of uh categories and then ask them to code material into that categories you can code for the absence or presence of it or you can you know uh see which category they put stuff into um and you could do that with relevant experts or you could do this with uh coders that you train on your like naive coders so to speak not experts but people who you gave your coding rubric to and say sure. code this material and then you can look do they agree with each other right the, how reliable is the coding uh, amongst say compared between experts and non-experts um, and indeed we did this so uh, we did uh, julia i should say primarily did the qualitative uh, assessment of the manifestos and and then recruited experts to code like material um selected from that to see if they identify the same categories and and then uh, non-experts, 20, uh, 20 odd non-experts and compare their codings with the ones that are already there. So that that's one set of analyses, which is, I think, in the paper that you looked at. And then we also did... Uh... So do you think America is ready to overcome its homophobia and elect uh, you know, a gay man like uh, Tim Scott or Cory Booker, president of the United States? Uh, statistical analysis, like giving feeding into a, you know, a, a kind of data analysis software. Uh, the linguistic codes that we have and the full text and then asking it to categorize the content the relative proportions in the different um content mm -hmm. and then you know also taking out 
the stuff which it has categorized and checking but is this coherent did it select like mm -hmm. reasonable mm -hmm. uh, things in those categories <laughs> so for folks who want to understand how science works i'm remembering the, the dm conversation now that we had where you were like how do i describe any of this in my text like what <laughs> oh. words would you use what things would you block out <laughs> like how many strings of slurs would you include in your peer-reviewed materials yeah there's a lot in so yeah like because there's, there's, how would you phrase this <laughs> there's a lot of slurs right yeah. especially so the, one this is not so we did this with manifestos but then we also looked at uh kind of logs of conversations uh chat logs or discord uh text logs for various different QAnon. um yeah how many n-words how many k-words you know how many racial slurs would you include in your peer-reviewed academic article on the language of terrorism Groups. you're all fair nazis you know Water yeah nazis. so so there's a lot of stuff in there that isn't um you know particularly nice a lot of slurs um and, and whatnot and so if you're describing what you would count as like, you know, derogatory slurs or outgroup dehumanization, you have to use the language that they use or you have to represent it somewhere. Um, but the question is like, do you put it in the paper? Or how many stars do you put in the paper? You know, the, the uh, so the, yeah, that was just- a, And the debate's a, about a, like, is it bad to like hide that stuff? Is it better? Like, is it whitewashing if you put it in the appendix? Should it be- up And, and there are certain slurs which seem <laughs> like more acceptable or you feel less- <laughs> There's a word you can't say, that's the worst <laughs> word. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, th then you're like, it's well, but we can't exclude it for one group and then allow the slurs for other groups. So, yeah, it's it, that, that was that was uh, an, an issue. Um, and we went with that we would provide warnings and then represent it, right? And we'll see. Sure what, did you? Uh, well, we, all the scientific evidence against their efficacy. Yeah, well, mainly, uh, I would say a little bit ours covering to say, sure. we're going to include these. Like but, a classic you know, neoliberal shell course. I'm yeah. just doing it so you don't get sued. Yeah, so, so that's what we did. And we looked at, and I would say as well, just one note here is that, I personally, I, my co-authors might disagree with this, but like I regard uh, the, whatever particular theoretical model that you're arguing for or that, you know, you do the analysis and you say, well, these factors seem to be uh, like more recurrent or whatever. I'm actually like pretty agnostic about which model is the best. Like if mm. people run a whole bunch of analysis with additional data sets and they find out that it's other predictors which are more commonly associated, mm. right? Or you add in other linguistic corpuses and the things that we highlighted actually turn out to be like less significant. I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. I, my general thing is that science and, and efforts, especially to quantify and triangulate things, it just has to be transparent. It has to be, you have to put all of the stuff out so that other people can apply the analyses. And I would like to see, for example, um, more tests done with material that is ideologically strong, but not uh, regarded as like harmful, mm -hmm. right? Because like say kinship language, I think you would find that kind of thing in a lot of, uh, you know, groups that people have no issue with, uh, in including, you know, like human yeah. rights organizations and stuff. So, or, yeah. or just religious groups that- um, Right. Well, it seems like almost all communities are running on it to some degree. Like that's the basic hardware, like the basic software of a community is interpersonal relationships. Um, yeah. I want to yeah. yeah, actually talk specifically about one example of that, but let me just ask while we're talking methods, counter examples like theoretically you should be going out there trying to disprove your theory because that's what good science looks like because falsification is the gold standard or something i don't understand science um <laughs> just part of it just yes. <laughs> um the like how do you look for disconfirming examples so philosophy <laughs> philosophers philosophy tends not to be an academic discipline that gets a lot of respect they, they philosophers tend to be late to the party because they usually start with analysis of their own feelings and then trying to impose their own feelings on reality rather than beginning with social science. So this is a philosopher admitting, you know, he doesn't really know how to do science. Examples, like do you guys go out and find, you folks go out and find like communities that meet the three criteria you described, but seem to never produce violent action and like 
you know, are there are there groups like that out there or is it possible to look for something like that? Yes, I think it, it, it is. There's like, there's a kind of endless amount of groups that you can look at. And I, I think you do need to look like before you want would draw any really strong conclusions, you would want to do what you're talking about, which is like, uh, look for groups that that fit the characteristics, um, but but aren't associated with violence and just do all of the same analyses and see how. So th that's the big problem with all these arguments and academic studies that, uh, you know, verbal violence leads to real world violence, because you can find 10,000 examples of verbal violence being used without, you know, physical violence accompanying it. So to whatever extent there is a connection between verbal violence and physical violence, it's quite remote. And when, you know, one group goes to a war with another group, it's usually because of visceral, real world, intense, extreme conflicts of interest between groups. That's what leads to, you know, one group trying to slaughter another group. That it's not because of things they heard on the radio. Uh, like what, what level the indicators are at. Now, we did do this to a certain extent. Like I said, we had free, mm. uh, you know, moderate in a certain sense, um, like texts that we compared to manifestos to, but that's only three, right? And two of them are speeches. So that's mm -hmm. important difference there. Um, also, when we looked at the QAnon groups, uh, we had, uh, I think it was uh, 11 or so groups, maybe more, but we, we did look at um, some comparison groups. A non-violent uh, control group was uh, this, the third R, um, kind of a, a religious community, right? But mm -hmm. one that, that we had like an extensive uh, chat log with. And then a, um, a violent control group, Iron March, like, you know, kind of neo-Nazi group. Mm -hmm. So there are, and, and also we, from the QAnon groups that we looked at, there's a there's groups which are much less extreme than others, right? They're more like conspiracy oriented. So it isn't like we have a a table in it that based on our like kind of indicators, fusion plus threat plus calls to violence and an estimated violence risk. And we we did find channels that were low uh, on those indicators or medium, right? There was only uh, one that was very high, and um, from the mm -hmm. ones that we looked at, so. It, it's important to note, I think, that, you know, QAnon and like if you listen to QAnon Anonymous, right, there's so many different uh, subgroups within that broad movement. And there's people with like differing degrees of interest in it and devotion to it. And you're always going to have some who are more ideologically extreme and you and you will have uh, subgroups which are like more cultish and, and that yeah. kind of thing. So I, I think it's important when talking about it, like to kind of keep that in mind, that especially yes, if you're talking about movements with millions of people, that they're not all, you know, potential violent terrorists. Right. And I would also assume this analysis would apply to a lot of kinds of like all behavior to some extent, not just like you're interested in violent extremism, but if you swap violent extremism out for anti-vaxxerism that you'd find yep. similar trends that like anti-vax, like, you know, think of um, uh, ultra Hasidic communities, right? They're going to be really high on this and are more susceptible to that kind of thing. Yeah. And you could be question. Yeah, hold on. Attend, I, would, I mean, yeah. just stuff like attendance to rallies, donations to, right. you know, like donations sure. to political candidates or whatever. And I, I would say, Aaron, that uh, one thing that I suggested is like, you would want to look at these kind of indicators in anti-fascist groups, right? Because sure. I'd be curious what you would see. Um, I bet you actually in... would see mixed results because I think the left is really bad at interpersonal relationships. And so, <laughs> no, I really, I'm, I'm not kidding. I really do think that we are bad at what you are describing here. I think. No. So I, I talked for, for years on how the right is really bad at interpersonal relationships. So here's this left-wing philosopher, Aaron Rabinowitz, talking about, oh, 
the left is really bad at interpersonal relationships. Oh, that's really I, I, I would agree. Identity via ideas, much worse at identity via persons. Um, but the, yeah, so this is yeah. about, you know, like the language of comrades and uh, that kind of thing. I'm not saying sure, it all sure. it all falls yeah. in that. Like we said, you know, kinship kind of stuff is just, it's like it's it's fairly common across a whole bunch of stuff. But it's like, more effective in certain communities, maybe, or their language is better. Like, like oh, the comrade stuff doesn't instill in me a sense of obligation in the same way that I think that like fundamentalist Christians really, really feel that community connection. But let me ask you about what seems to be the obvious pick, which is why are, have you, I'm, like, I'm jumping the gun here, I apologize, and I'll have you back on when you publish, but why aren't you applying this to the gurus here? Doesn't it seem like all of that interpersonal stuff you described in the first half of, you know, when you're talking about how they are obsessed with these interpersonal relationships, like, sounds like they're doing exactly what you're describing here, and that it might mean that they are creating a higher, that, that could explain why there's a higher risk of conspiracism in their community. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, so uh, I think partly it is that, um, so you definitely get the perception of threat, right, and the, the kind sure. of uh the vast conspiracy of evil forces which are targeting you you also get the like the strong in group out group i markers right you are part of the select and, and we are a uh you know like a brothership of of light or whatever you but i think one issue there is that the power of sociality is more focused on the kind of guru figure right and consuming the their content and that that means it's probably mm, uh -huh. more closer in line to like cultish dynamics as opposed to like Extremist so you're not building like interpersonal communities where you hang out and talk about Jordan yeah. Peterson as much. Well, some of it, but it's like it's not yeah. together as strongly as these other kinds of communities. And then it's lacking definitely in most cases the the endorsements of violence or calls to violence. Now, Alex Jones, for example, would be different than that, right? Because I think he is creating all of these things along with very you know like subtle is not is doing them too much <laughs> like lending right. them too much credibility. He is calling to violence often on his well, show. How much are y'all looking at implicit calls to violence versus explicit? Because I feel like if you look at your James Lindsay's of the IDW, right, who I still think should be, you know, considered part of this, even if they have been effectively excised at the moment. Um, we saw how that's gone with Nawaz, right? Like, hmm. uh, you know, I don't know that James ever explicitly said go murder a bunch of globalists, but he certainly has built a case for it in a very substantial way. And I think we all, like, understand the idea that a lot of stochastic terrorism doesn't, it's not at any level built on someone explicitly saying go rid me of these meddling priests, right? It's very much like these people are an existential threat to everything you love. What are you going to do about a question mark? Right, right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I was just listening to, um, there's a podcast called Some Dare Call It Conspiracy, um, and it's, it's doing a multi-part series on the um, Pizzagate conspiracy, right? And they played a clip from Infowars mm -hmm. where Owen Troyer was talking about Comet Ping Pong. And very much, it wasn't, it wasn't subtle. It was, someone needs to go there. Somebody, you know, needs to stand up for what's right. If you go there, you'll be saving people look in the, and, and Infowars have scrubbed that now from, you know, for obvious reasons right. but even I, that is an explicit violence right like he's just saying go there he's not saying go there and kill anyone he's saying just go there no but like alex jones is also saying you know we need to take care of this and then like but then there, there's always the disclaimers and stuff added in and i i do think like so one issue would be that there's the problem that calls to violence are actually sort of relatively common right like that sure. you you do see people uh, endorsing them or you know kind of saying that we need to noise the time like it's we and and so the explicit endorsement of violence, although it's not acceptable, like on lots of things to do it outright, but but it's still there. But, that, but that's the problem is like because that signal is there on its own. It, in most occasions, it doesn't lead to anything, right? Well, you'll, Even you'll have like an easier time then, like focusing on anti-vaxxer, for example, where people feel like they can be openly anti-vaxxer right now, and you could study like how much well, anti-vaxxers and picking up in certain communities like that. Yeah, so but that's the kind of thing that I, I well, I, I do think it would be interesting to look at anti-vax uh, sentiment, but like I, I would say that a whole bunch of you know violent conspiracy theorists. 
they are anti-vaxxers as, as sure. well, right? Like, they're so, certainly going to be overlaps, yeah. Um, yeah so I, I, like, there's overlaps between the anti-vaxxers and the QAnon in the sense that it's often these online communities that are baking, you know, together, right? When you bake together, it seems like you, you're you building these interpersonal relationships. So my, my feeling with the anti-vax stuff, and this, again, this is ill-formed thoughts, right? But just my initial reaction is like, the anti-vax sentiment is often a kind of stepping stone to the bigger conspiracy, right? Because you're first saying the mm -hmm. vaccines don't work, it's the pharmaceutical companies, but then there's always the step to who controls the pharmaceutical companies. It's the WEF great reset. Yeah, I think this is true. So let's see the trajectory of many of the anti-vaccine people in our community gender right it's well, you know my view that like as soon as like i do think as soon as you start down a like they big they rabbit hole like <laughs> there's, there's it, it's impossible to not let everything in the door right it's like you know your, your epistemology becomes such that it's difficult to discount the other ones um yeah and, and often those are people with little hats that, right, that are yes. uh, ultimately uh right, right the hats get smaller and smaller until they just sit on the back of your head and then then you solve the question of who's causing all the problems so what, um, but that's the that's the point to me a little bit is that you so if you were looking at anti-vax communities or whatnot, that you you won't get. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you will get some groups where it's more moderate and there's, there's kind of just like contrarian doctors. But I think the more that you get into the hardcore anti-vax stuff, it gets into the melange of like, uh, you know, the the kind of conspiracism that you see in QAnon that you previously saw in militia communities and and so on. Like, there, so and and that yeah. I wonder because I mean, like, you can get it that people you know attack abortion clinics, right? So it's not sure. like. You can't and I would worry that people were going to attack, um, like vaccine, uh, COVID vaccine places, and it seems like yeah. it hasn't happened. With thankfully, um, that I, I know well, at least I wouldn't to be a significant degree. But like you, it wouldn't have been a shock had it have happened, right? And it, it would have been a very seems... plausible soft target. It seems like. Um, yeah. We're a little over time, so I'm running late here. I do want to ask a little bit, like, is there anything applicable at this point in this research that we can like use to actually help people reduce risk, or are we mostly just still trying to like map causes and then hopefully be able to influence them to some degree? Well, I think the general, with this kind of material, I, I think Julia is probably more directly involved with, you know, like counterterrorism efforts and that kind of thing. And those organizations are always attempting to look for, you know, stuff that they can flag up material. And, and that's an issue. They got a lot of recorded right? language that they want to analyze is what you're saying. You know, right. NSA and, needs some new technologies. Eh? Right. So th that, and that's a concern, right? Like, because you, you have to factor in that people, whatever disclaimers you put in, people may just go, well, okay, let's just apply this corpus and say the, anybody who flags up these three things causes danger. So I, I think it's important to emphasize that like all the, the kind of work that we have done here and these, these models, they have to be considered alongside, you know, like deep qualitative analysis and that they, they shouldn't be treated as like they're more scientifically rigorous, right? Like it should be, mm -hmm. I, I would want to emphasize that these are, I think using linguistic analysis and this kind of stuff, we should be doing it. And we should be uh, like the, the material is there, people are, you know, going to do it in, in any case. And like the tools to, to be able to do it are getting better. Um, and there's a lot of conspiracism and extremism around. So, you know, analytical tools for doing it are important, but I, I'm wary about people applying like simplistic models or becoming theoretically devoted to you know a specific mm -hmm. set of predictors and like i i prefer to emphasize like a a triangulation approach um, but but one that that takes like linguistic analysis serious so so yeah i'm i'm pretty is a very woke uh, qualitative position I, I appreciate that you have adopted that and acknowledged it openly here um yeah i just don't want to be <laughs> end up <laughs> like being somebody getting you know flagged up on a terrorist watch list sure. or something because sure. they they talked about their brothers in a struggle or something um but would be a deep yeah. irony given your heritage wouldn't it um, <laughs> yes it, it, it would so yeah would, but... Yes. but you have been a very amicable irishman i do appreciate it um speaking of overly simplistic models though i do unfortunately have to torture you before we get on to the bonus times so you're familiar this is a, a great part of this embrace the void philosophy podcast here. I love what he does next. I don't know how this works, but this is the enlightening round. 
Enlightenment comes from within. And for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You are going to tell me are these things real or not real. Um, this will make you sad and everyone will laugh and that'll be fun. Um, are you ready? Yeah, though I've done it once before, so doesn't that mean like we, I'm it's pretty? New ones now. It's new oh, ones it's now. new ones. Oh, bugger! Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I was yeah. like, eh, yeah, no, we're you know. we started over with new things now, so you're gonna have to. And some of these are gonna be particularly tricky for you, given the work that you do. So I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this. Mm. Um, so first of all, I always have to check at this point: is anything real? Yeah. All right. So let's code: real or not real, with no notes. Uh, bodies: real or not real? Real. Okay. Minds: real or not real? Real. <laughs> I have to tell you, the face he's making is impressive. Uh, free will. Oh, real. <laughs> wow, a, we know those sales fast. Uh, luck. Um, real. <laughs> I guess it's real. Demons. Not real. Oh, afterlife. Not real. Truth. Real. Beauty. Yeah, real. <laughs> Justice. Real, real. Yeah, not no, not real, not real. Kind of real. Not real. Uh, real. Pick one. Not real. Not real. All right. Not real. Okay. And finally, hope. Well, I said just as I guess not real, then. All right. You have survived. How do you feel? Uh, not good. <laughs> not good. I was feeling... about, about how I the first round. Yeah. Yeah. That was easy up till when I detected my obvious contradictions. <laughs> and then it was at me. As always fun. I like that you, with very little equivocation or attempts to use real or not real, still conveyed a wide range of emotions. You really <laughs> went from happy to very sad to back to happy for a second on demons and then way, way down into sad, which is pretty funny. I, I think it's interesting. You could do a study, Aaron, in the reactions that you get to this. Because I particularly enjoy when you do this activity with people who are, you know, maybe somewhat more suspicious of you or less agreeable than I am. Sure. And they are obviously regarded as like a trap. <laughs> so, and so they're, or the, <laughs> the people who, trap want, of all time. who want to qualify it, you know, you, you explain the rules. I'm a rule-based guy. You know, you say, yeah, you're this or that. But, but other people are like, each answer gets a large explanation. Like, you'll get to do that. That's, that's why it's hard. So anyway, I'm just completely about your other guests, not me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. I'm glad you're picking fights with my other guests. I love that. Love that. That's a, a great, great uh, series of questions for, for a podcast. I, I love that. Real or not real? Mind, body, hope, truth, justice, love, afterlife, demons. Uh, great series of questions there. Andrew... Aaron, Aaron Rabinowitz, the left-wing philosopher. That's it for me. Take care. Bye-bye.